0: Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. How's it going? It's going. You, 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 I think now you're officially out of your little personal quarantine just in time for the entire state of Pennsylvania to basically shut down. Correct. Uh, Lucky I was, you.
1: I was quarantining before it was cool. Oh, great. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So I'm, this is now week three. Uh, we had a brief, you know, respite where we went out for my birthday. Uh, a reduced amount because it was kinda like at that time it was like, maybe we shouldn't be doing stuff, not really sure. People were saying, Ah, bars and restaurants are still okay. And the next day it was like, Yeah, no, don't do that. It was like, Okay. Had our last hurrah. <laughs> um But yeah, it's uh starting to settle into a routine. I think the first two weeks I was like, Okay, you know, two weeks is two weeks, I'm not really gonna worry about too much. Now it's like okay, I gotta like think about how I'm gonna structure my day a little bit more and not just wing it. Like I usually do when I work from home Yeah, and now you know, and finding a balance for Shay and I in the house together and apart. And, you know, she's working at the same time. And this is like her busiest time of the year where she is on appointments all day long. Like, uh, uh so that's an interesting change. Um, so my office is getting a little smelly. It's
0: cracked hmm. the crack window there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. You're on day, day two, right? Yeah, we're not really in any kind of real, like, quarantine situation. Even my office is basically doing, like, it's more just kind of a loose, hey, now we're going to be flexible, and maybe you work from home, or maybe you have flex hours, or um, which is... In part, I understand it because there are certain people in my office who can't work from home for all intents and purposes. Like we've got people, you know, like graphic designers and people who work on like laying out the circular who they work on like big Mac desktop machines. You know, they don't have a laptop like a lot of us that they can just throw in a bag and go home with. Yeah. Um, and then there are also other people in the office who... You know, like they're manning phones, either customer service calls or, you know, they're manning the phones like they're the guy who picks up the phone when one of the stores doesn't get their shipment of toilet paper, you know. And the truth is that there are, you know, if we absolutely had to shut down the office, there would probably be ways to handle all this. But that's not where they are yet. But me, since all of my work can be done from home, I I was like, on Friday, I was like, yep, I'm I'm going to be working from home because number one, I think it's the responsible thing to do. And number two, knowing that in our office, like there are some people who can't work from home, you know, the more desks we can free up, the better so that those people who have to be in the office can physically spread out. Um. So. um. So, yeah, so this is day two. It is an adjustment. Um, Karen's been working from home since like 2014, so she's got her whole world set up, Um, but... It definitely is an adjustment for me, uh, more so than I thought, because, I mean, I'm used to just, like, having a work-from-home day here and there or an afternoon, but, you know, like, settling into the idea of, like, oh, no, this is going to be it for a while, you know? Like, I'm I'm under no illusions that this is just going to be for two weeks, you know? <laughs> like, no, through, I mean, Yeah. CDC is saying, like, eight weeks. I, I, I even, I think that is conservative. Yeah. So, um, who
1: knows, but... Um, I definitely think that it's going to be quite a bit of time. And yeah, I, I think it's an interesting, it's interesting to see how people adjust or don't adjust and you know, more more to come on that later. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, no, I, it, it's definitely strange. I've been, you know, talking to my coworkers a lot and a lot of them, most of my office have children under the age of five and they're just like, yeah, this is hard. <laughs> yeah. Cause they don't get that. Like, well, mommy has to go work for four hours right now and go hang with daddy. It's like, well, no, I want to go hang with mommy. It's like, well, okay. But you know you can't and it's just a messy messy time luckily i work in you know i'm very fortunate that I mean, we're, both, we're both fortunate in that you know we work at jobs that can work from home and we still get paid and you know that we can be home you can be home with your kid and that i can be home and, and have no real ill effects that's not a big mm-hmm. chunk of our society uh you know so i also particularly work on a job that's particularly flexible and there's not a lot of like there's not a ton of like immediate deliverables or, like, a lot of pressure for certain things. I mean, that's, that all changes as time goes on. But yeah especially since all the students are home now, I mean, it, it does make work in a different way where it's like, okay, now we got to build infrastructure for all this stuff digitally that we're not used to having. Yes. But, which is interesting, but, yeah. So, so I mean, we're getting into it. Should we, just, should we just talk about our topic tonight? Yeah, let's do it. So, our topic tonight, big surprise, is uh, related to what's going on. So this podcast we deal heavily in speculative fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which in my mind kind of frequently amounts to if-then statements, right? Sure. If superheroes existed, what would happen? If aliens showed up, then what? If magic were real, how would the world change? So in this episode, let's flex our muscles we've been, you know, building <laughs> up for a while, and say, you know, hypothetically, if the world of 2020 experienced a major global pandemic, then what do we think is going to change?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Hypothetically, purely. Right. Um, you know, I keep talking about it with, in terms of like, when we get to a status quo, because I, I, I think that no one should be under the illusions that the after that the post coronavirus world is just going to like go back to pretty much the same way things used to be before coronavirus um we're not gonna go back to the old status quo is what i mean we're gonna have there's some new status quo will show up i think we all know based on how chaotic the last i mean even three hours have been (laughs) yeah um is you know the idea of a status quo is crazy but at some point we will have a status quo and it will be different um but i think it might be interesting slash maybe therapeutic to imagine some of the potential, you know, what the world, the post coronavirus world is going to look like. Yeah. Um, I mean,
1: I'll say that I want to take two things. Preface first is that even listening to the episode we put out last week, mm -hmm. even there's some things that I said in there. I'm like, that didn't age well. (laughs) Um, So sorry about that. Yeah. No, no, we're all doing our best here. Um, Yeah. And also that like, you know, we're gonna record this now at 835 on March 18th.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, in an hour, two hours a day, you know, however long until we post it and then however long until you know you listen to it, it things could be dramatically different and all what we say could be bullshit.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, it, it very well could be. Um I will say as a little bit of level setting, um, I know when I've been kind of doing my thinking about this, I've I've gone with I kind of set some assumptions uh, at the outset. Um, these are things that I I think are probably likely, but all of my kind of predictions and thought experiments are based on it. The following two assumptions: one is that the kind of quarantine, lockdown, social distancing, shelter in place, it, uh, that kind of world that we're in right now, um, where we are all um. Doing various things to stay away from each other and limit our um, person-to-person interactions, um, whether that's some kind of official thing like a quarantine or a shelter-in-place order, or more just the softer social distancing, something like that. Assuming that that world is going to continue for a few months at minimum, that this whole that you know it's not going to be that oh by Easter we're all kind of back to our normal routines. If that's the case great, but all of my assumptions are assuming it's going to be a couple of months before we have an option to return to normal. And two, um, that there aren't going to be like really like catastrophic casualties where um, the amount of people who die from this, um, obviously every death is a tragedy for the people it affects, but when I'm talking about like catastrophic deaths, you know, something like the Black Plague that killed like thirty percent of people, um, you know, which which drastically, you know, um, upset the the whole social order of you know medieval Europe. I'm not not on that scale where the amount of people who pass away are, is going to have large scale political or social or economic consequences. So those are my two assumptions. Yeah, I think that's a
1: good point. the The number of casualties isn't one of the factors. That's sort of driving these changes. Right. Because and I'll, I'll post it or I'll make you post it in the show notes. Um, I just read an article that was out, it was an interview on The New Yorker from a a professor who just a professor emeritus of history and medicine from Yale who wrote a book about <laughs> good timing for him uh, epidemics and their effects on the world <laughs> historically. Yeah. Um, so they just talking to him about some, some of the factors. It was a short little interview, but you know, he was just saying that, you know, these things affect the world, like all aspects of it, you know, whether it's political or economic or societal or even something more like indirect, such as art or film or, or all these things, like these are going to have like, there's gonna be ripple effects and something as big as this. I think that especially in our world, it's even more relevant because while the casualties might not be a driving factor like they were for maybe, say, tuberculosis or Spanish influenza or the Black Plague. But the because of our global interconnected world and the Internet and social media and media in general, I feel like the response to this is going to permeate even more of that sort of like less, less physical world,
0: more intangible world. Mm hmm. Um. And one other thing I want to I want to make a note of before we begin, Um, I want to acknowledge that the economic impacts of this are going to be um, catastrophic for a lot of people. Um, Obviously, you know, people who work in food service, hospitality, transportation, they are already feeling the pinch. I don't know that things are going to get a lot better for them. Um, A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And as a result of losing their jobs, are going to lose their health care and, you know, their homes and their security and all of those things. And that's fucking awful. And there's no way around that. And it's a moral failure of our system that we are not prepared to um, help people when that happens. Um, and in the course of this conversation about potential outcomes of this, I don't want to... I don't want to lose sight of the very real impacts that people are going to have short term and long term economically as, as a result of this. Um, I just worry that if we get, you know, getting very pie in the sky about potential positive outcomes, um, I don't want to ignore the very real, very negative outcomes that a lot of people are going to feel as a result of the, the economic disruptions that this causes. Um, So I just wanted to get that out of the way, too. And, you know, saying things like, well, there will still be a hospitality industry after this, like there will still be hotels Um, that is cold comfort to, you know, hotel housekeepers who will lose their jobs while the hotels have no business and just because the business will come back to the hotels, that doesn't help out the people who were out of a job for six months or a year or however long, you know, during that period. So I want to get that out there first.
1: Yeah. I mean, as an example, uh, one close to home, um, not personally, affected our family, but close by is that if you know, Shay's mom is a public school teacher in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania and her school district, all of their, custodians paraprofessional secretaries were all furloughed today yeah and, and like that's just that's going to happen to a lot of people and to your point it's a moral failing that we don't have a safety net to protect that i mean there's lots of talk and buzz about things to help and maybe some of it will come to pass and i'm going to try and stay away from immediate political concerns in this discussion tonight because that's a whole nother thing but um it's gonna bump up against that definitely a little bit right uh but yeah, so just you know, do, and I hope that everyone is trying to do their best to
0: keep those people in mind and help out, yes, when they can, yes. All right, I think that's enough grim for for now. Do you do you do you agree? Yes. On to the future.
1: Yes. So, I want to start with work because mm-hmm. I think it's most immediate on people in our probably many listeners of this podcast. Um, you know, you and I's our spouses, our families, sort of. Uh, thought right now is mm-hmm. that now many of us are working from home. Um, probably many of us have dabbled with work from home days. You know, you get one here or there, and they're kind of a special treat. Um, you know, some, there's plenty of people who are fully remote. I have a very good friend who's been fully remote. And I kind of think, like, I look over him, it's like, his life has barely changed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, saw a funny meme about like when you, you know, for on the, I think it was on PC master race, a subreddit and like when you realize your entire life is kind of a quarantine. <laughs> uh, so that's true for some people, but I think in general, you know, there's always been, and it's been eroding away slowly, but I think this is going to propel us in a very a new direction very quickly. Um, in, when it comes to the idea of remote work and the efficacy and the infrastructure surrounding that.
0: Right. I mean, I think that I think that's a good that's a good place to start because we are um, many, many businesses are going to be, you know, essentially they're forced now in a lot of ways to have their employees work from home. Um, And I think that it's going to change it. We're running a very big experiment, right? Mm -hmm. And I think most people who have been 100 percent remote for a very long time, like you say, they're like, yeah, this is how it is. And on the small scale, I think we've all seen that with those remote workers, it's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe one would say better. some <laughs> uh, yes. In some I ways. Mean, um, so you're going to have a lot of companies who maybe are a little bit more old fashioned or who just have never like uh, the decisions never really been forced on them. Right. Right. To think about working work from home in a large scale, long, um, long term kind of way. Um, who are now forced into it because there's just either morally they can't get away with forcing people to come in or um, or they're, you know, they're, they're in a situation where their <laughs> local government has basically said, fucking stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it's pretty obvious to me that we're not going to go back to the way things were. Yeah. I mean, I think that this
1: is a time for, it'll be interesting. There's going to be some, you know, some intense circumstances surrounding it that they're going to have to be accounted for, but it's a good point to collect, you know, data at a, you know, individual level, but also at like a company-wide or organizational-wide level of like, what did, what changed for our, however you, however that place measures their effectiveness, their efficiency, whatever their goals are. Uh, What's the... You know, what's the impact on this move? Obviously, there's a big dip in the scramble to make it all work, which yes. is going to impact productivity and, you know, relationships and things. There's also the fact that not only are many people working from home, but also the fact that they're trying to, like, watch their two five-year-olds run around or whatever at the same time they're trying to work, which is also going to impact productivity so my concern would be that companies are going to say oh i'll see all this productivity went down but it's like yeah but if they didn't have their kids at home or things weren't as stressful they weren't trying to get to the grocery store at a certain time to buy toilet paper like what's that factor or or, and even but more positively if you if things don't demonstrably change with all those all that whole context over top of it well then damn you better think that it's going to even be even better
0: without that so here's here's what i think I, I I think that, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of a transition week, you know, like, for example, Monday was my first, um, you know, first real work from home day. And despite the fact that I've worked from home plenty of days in the past, um, yesterday was the day when. All of my IT just decided not to work at all. So <laughs> I spent most of the day just on the phone with the help desk ch- trying to get my shit to work. Um, and so you figure I can't be the only one in my company having this experience. And I, you know, and we can't be the only company that has people like me having this kind of experience. So you figure... Yeah, there's going to be a little dip of just, you know, there's going to be problems like that and just folks kind of, you know, figuring out how to make it work. Um, But I think that adjustment period is going to be pretty quick. Um, And I think that what's going to happen is I think employers are going to find that people are just as productive when they work from home. And I think employees are going to find that they are just as productive when they work from home, but also have time for other things around the home. I think that people are going to find that, huh, you know, I still got just as much done, but it's only two o'clock. Or I got just as much done, but I still took a nap with my kid in the middle of the day. Huh. And I think that's a great thing for workers. What I worry about is when the employers find out (laughs) that you were just as productive, but maybe you weren't putting in as many hours Mm -hmm. in the in the traditional sense of you're sitting here and we're watching you kind of way right Um, i mean you can read all those studies about the amount of time people
1: actually you know in a a typical desk job in 2020 how much time someone spends working versus socializing in the office versus going on facebook or reddit or shopping or whatever it is you do with you're dicking around the internet at your job and i think that's a really interesting uh context because you know are, are you subbing in productive things around the home or with your family for and you know instead of some of those more you know tertiary things you do in life where you're just like ah, i don't feel like working on this I right. go on reddit good question
0: yeah i mean i know my my these last two days for me uh have not been the most productive the first day because again i was just you know i was dealing with stupid administrative things um and today i i will say i i I was sandbagging it a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think that the stress of the pandemic situation, you know, maybe had been building up and I just kind of needed a little bit of a uh, of a quiet day. Um, and I didn't get a whole lot done today. I don't you know, but um, I do think because I think back when um when um, right after Karen injured her back right around this time last year, um, and I was working from home for part of the week because Karen was under doctor's orders to not lift anything heavier than five pounds. And our daughter weighed 20. So, you know, between me being home some days and Charlotte going to daycare some days, um, I was working from home, you know, for a longer stretch. It was it was it was like five or six weeks of, you know, kind of alternating days. So, but once I was in that rhythm, I really found that those days where I was working from home, I was just as productive, if not more so. But I was still able to do things like, you know, um, go for a walk with the kid and, you know, do that kind of stuff. And I think, yeah, maybe you are taking a little bit more time away from the shopping or the Reddit or the reading the news or, you know, you know, walking down to the next cubicle and, and, you know, having a 20 minute conversation with coworker about TV or whatever. Um, but I also think that when you're working from home, there's also, I think the fact that you are remote, um, decreases the amount of like little bullshit you have to do. And, um, as a result, you can focus more on the important stuff. Um, which which I think contributes to productivity because it's like you're no longer wasting work hours on inconsequential tasks like, you know, I'm I'm in insights, so I handle a lot of data. And a lot of times someone will, you know, they'll just kind of pop over with a little question that I'll go need to dig through something for. And it's not a huge deal. Um, and maybe if they hadn't if they hadn't come over and asked, they would have either figured it out or just made a call and didn't, you know, you know, didn't need me to help with a decision or they would have remembered or they would have asked somebody else or whatever. But then that's a half an hour, an hour I don't spend chasing down some inconsequential thing. You get asked fewer bullshit things and as a result, you spend less time chasing little shiny objects that are technically work related, but not really important. Um, And I also think that when you're remote and especially when your whole team is remote, I think what we're going to find is, you know, there's that that saying for those of us who have office jobs of like, you know, this meeting could have been an email. Yeah. Um, That's all those meetings that could have been emails are going to turn into emails, which is going to free up a lot of time in people's days to actually work on stuff that matters. Yeah,
1: I I agree.
0: If you get if if you can do that and you get all the stuff that matters done by two o'clock, Nobody's really gonna. I mean, nobody's gonna know really or care that. Eh, I, you know, I'm. You know what? All right, it's two o'clock. You know, I'm gonna run to. The, I'm gonna go get some grocery shopping done. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's. If you look at <clears throat> more forward-thinking companies around the world right now, that is in a different work. You know, different countries, especially. But there's this idea of like you know people will say it all the time, but a real commitment to. Just get the work done. I don't care how many hours you're logged into this system or checking the clock or whatever you do. Punch the clock. You know, if you get your work done to a satisfactory level, then you've earned your salary. Right. And where that takes place, when that takes place, you know, there's different contexts. But generally speaking, that's the idea. And I think that's very much true. And I think you can see it in more technically oriented fields like software development, like um, you know, that, that sort of area, software engineering yeah, right. where that's kind of how they work and there's, there's, there's booms and there's busts and no one really, you know, as long as you're meeting your deadlines and meeting your goals and know, like, to your other point that can get, be careful because companies can then start to go the other direction and realize that there's more quote unquote potential productivity. But I think there's a, there's a lot of research out there that says like, yeah, 30 hour work week is pretty good. You know, a four day work week's pretty good. People having flexible time. You know, there's some things that show that when it comes to productivity, not just how many man hours is going to something, but the product that comes out of it is is important and and beneficial.
0: And I will say that there is a potential downside here um, where the 40 hour work week exists as a concept because labor organizers fought for it. Because to to put some constraints on management and say, there is only so much you can ask of us. Um, and to set some standards and some expectations around, you know, how much, where, where, what is the time that employees give to their employer? And what is the time that the employers can't touch, essentially? Um, and I think that those delineations are important. And there is a question of... In a future world where um, it's no, it's not so much about the hours you put in, but rather about the content you produce, the work you produce. Do we want to get into a situation where all of us are now working like game developers, where you have these crunch periods where essentially nobody is ever not working, right? Because it's about it's about deadlines and it's about output, and um, at that point, everybody's just getting worked to death because you know. The quality of the output is, you know, management is going to, you know, raise the expectations for output while continually pushing deadlines up, right? Mm-hmm. Until the point where either everything breaks or they make the maximum profit. So how do you protect against that? I don't know. But I will say one of the things that I think might help us, and this is, this is a weak effect. I don't know how much I would bet on it, but I have noticed in my professional life, that there was a period in the mid-2010s, I think it kind of peaked maybe in the the early mid-2010s, where there was this thing of getting emails from your boss at all hours and being expected to answer them. Yeah. And the work, uh, you know, professional life, personal life thing really started to blur. And it just seemed like Um, the 40 hour work week had gone away (laughs) entirely. Um, but I feel like that's shifting a little bit. And I feel like as, um, and I feel like that was probably more when you had, and not to get too generational about it, but you had baby boomers in middle and upper management who were essentially, they were the bosses sending emails at all hours of the night. Basically, they got an email machine in their pocket, and now all of a sudden could be demanding psychopaths all the time. But as Gen X kind of matures into those positions in the office hierarchies, they are a little less shitty about it. Um, And because they were on the other end of that nonsense, they are probably less inclined to push as hard on those things. But... Again, that's a weak effect. I would I would hope that there were that there are stronger social norms in place about it. But um, I mean, it's always a battle between, you know, it's always going to be a battle between labor and management about how hard they're getting pushed. So the the battle lines are going to shift from uh, hours to, you know, essentially what game developers deal with it and crunch, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's. That's very fair. I think that it's also very, I mean, it's very industry dependent, like, to your point. Absolutely. Um, And, and sort of where you kind of peg yourself and, and what ladder you're trying to climb, if such a ladder exists. I think that there's a couple things here. I think that as we've come, part of the change, I think, too, is I think m- mid-2010s, you know, there was, you know, like you said, everyone had a smartphone now. And I think that while the level of phone addiction has definitely increased since then. I think the balance of what people are doing in that, I think that, you know, there was less fun stuff to do on your phone to be frank. So yeah. work became, you know, email was a very easy thing to do. That's an interesting point. And and so that's what you focused on. Where now it's like, hmm, "I'm just going to go on whatever Reddit or Instagram or something." I also think that there is a recognition that like overstressing your workers yes. tends to diminish their productivity and output as well as I do think there's been a shift in some ideas of like privacy and downtime and on time. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's, you know, there's still plenty of industries and bosses and companies that demand these type of things. But, you know, I I like to, I, for a long time I was thinking about this because, and I'm going to reference this person probably a couple of times. So I have a friend who, who has worked completely remote. I mean, he goes in the office every so often, but more or less completely remote for probably going on seven years mm-hmm. and if you listen to this he's probably not because he's an asshole but yeah. you know he knows who he is and he's a particular kind of person and he really prefers this lifestyle uh he's a very productive guy software developer and i looked to him in a lot of ways because he's my only example of like a fully remote person with a full-time job that you know works that way that i know closely and I see in him sometimes and, and it's, you know, we talked about it and so it's not, uh, I'm not sharing private stuff, but just like that, it can start to take over a little bit your life when you don't have a distance between your work and your private life and the phone. When you, and now you can not only do your email, but you can have Slack. You can, you can even edit code on your phone. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and what's the expectation versus what you just like to do to get it done. You know, this idea of work-life balance and, or even like what I was trying to like say, I hate this word sometimes, but like work-life synergy, like, do you just like mm. pick at some things that, you know, you work from, I don't know, nine to 11 and then you get some stuff done and then you work one to three and then, you know what, seven to eight later at night, you do a couple more things. It's just like, if it works better for you, is that okay in your job? Uh I've gone back and forth on that. You know, it, it's a really hard, there's all these things people say to do, right? Oh, you know, if you're working from home, make sure you have a separate space, make sure you, you know, get you know, take a shower and don't wear sweatpants all day and whatever else. And I mean, I think most people don't do those things and I think it's kind of arbitrary. I think you need to find what works for you as an individual, obviously, but um, I do think there is a negative side here though. And I want to talk a couple about a couple pragmatic things that are positive about mm-hmm. a more remote workforce, but then also touch on some things we need to be leery of. Mm-hmm. So I think about remote work a lot. I just think it's a very, It's just so transformative for our society in a lot of ways Uh, because like think downstream of what happens when you you say even if you get 30 or 40 percent of the white collar, you know, work workforce working remotely. You have people not commuting to work, to and from work. Mm -hmm. So that makes for huge, you know, there's huge. There's less people, less. Let me start. There's so many things I could say. Mm -hmm. Let's say environmental aspects. Less cars on the road is less carbon emissions and less Work maintenance need to be done on those roads. Yep. So, less pollution in general. Second thing is, economically for people, they're spending less money commuting. Yep. They're spending less time commuting. Yep. That also has downstream effects of there's less traffic, so the people who are commuting are still spending less time and less gas and less money commuting. There's less need for certain... Emergency services are going to be less car accidents. You need less EMTs. You need, there's less cars on the road. You need less cops. Although that's going to be an issue the other direction because that's how they make their money. There's other downstream effects of, you know, public transit, right? Like if public transit lines don't need to be as big, could you make more of them? Could they go longer? Could they go further? Also, economically for individuals and their families, if you have, if you may only need one car as opposed Mm -hmm. to two, you may only need to drive your car two or three days a week. So you don't need to have as nice a car or as durable a car or you have a nice car, but it's going to last you three times as long because you're not driving it near as much, which I mean, auto costs, I think the United States is an under discussed piece of, you know, lower and middle class families like economic life, because, you know, from anything from just like unforeseen repair requirements, because like, well, you need a car, you know, and just balancing when's the right time to trash a car and get a new one versus try and repair it, you know, auto insurance, all these things. I think that, and just like the, the shittiness in the auto, it is the auto industry that is an incredibly greedy capital C capitalist industry. I have many friends who work in that industry and it's fucking miserable. I mean, you know, in hearing, you know, I, you know, my brother-in-law worked selling cars for a while at CarMax and people will come in and they have these predatory loans, Absolutely. And people will be happy, you know, be like, oh, I got 20 percent in my car. loan. this is awesome. It's like, no, don't buy this car, dude. Like, you know, and there's there's other cultural and societal issues there that that prompt certain things in that. But in that space.
0: But, you know, that's just the beginning. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you you mentioned just the, the costs, I mean, I was just running the numbers in my head. And, you know, I drive a Honda Civic and Karen drives a Subaru Outback. These are not expensive cars. Um, the Outback you know Karen's car cuz she works from home um gets very few miles on it um you know basically she'll use it during the week to maybe run an errand or two pick Charlotte up at daycare um, and then that's the car we take when you know we're going to go on a car trip um or it's it's the it's the grocery getter cuz it's got a big trunk so doesn't get a ton of mileage but between those two cars we probably spend between car payments, insurance, and gas, we're probably paying six to $700 a month in, in maintaining those two cars. Um, and that is not nothing. And no. yeah, if you're right, if we get to a point where we are both reliably working from home, um, we probably very, very easily could consider going, becoming a one car family. Yeah. Um, and cut those costs in half.
1: Yeah. I mean Shay and I, you know, we work at the same place, so we commute together most days. Now there are days when we don't, if she has an event after work or I do, or we're going to a friend's house or something, you know, things that are nice to have two cars but aren't a necessity. We only bought our I mean it's been a you know over a year now, but Shay's old car broke down and we were a one car family for five months, four months, mm-hmm. and there were some inconveniences, but overall, like we it was fine. Sure. And like you said, I, mean, I think even that number, $600 a month, like if you factor in maintenance and repairs, oh, yeah. like yep. that's probably on the lower end of what most people spend. A lot Absolutely. of people have two car payments that are three, four, five hundred dollars 500 a month. Factor on insurance, gas, maintenance, you know, registration, all these things, tolls, like all these things oh, yeah. add up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not even amount.
0: counting those like little one time or two or three times a year costs. This is just the flat monthly cost that like the minimum I'm going to pay every month. Now, you know, one of them needs new tires. Well, that goes on top. Right, exactly. So there's another area
1: where there's a lot of economic thought as well. I wanted to point out Mm -hmm. for companies. I mean, I don't know much about the financial, you know, working, inner workings of organizations and businesses. It's not something I've learned a lot about. I know some public finance stuff, but that's about it. However, I can say that many places space, is expensive. Mm-hmm. Running those spaces has to be expensive. Heating and cooling, furniture, technology, technology, infrastructure, amenities. You know, I mean, even something like just like, how much does it cost to get the water cooler f- filled every week? How much does it cost to have snacks sitting around? How much does it cost to do this or that, to own the building, to lease the building, to do the maintenance on the, you know, uh the snow or the, you know, the lawn or whatever else it is like. And for many places, at least for my, Mon- this is, you know, personal me like universities, a lot of them space is a huge issue of just like, how do we cram more people onto this campus? Because we can't really go any other direction because we live in this little serene compound, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't want to completely turn it into a parking lot because that's kind of how colleges are quote unquote <laughs> supposed to be. So, how do we fit more people? You know, I've been bringing this up at my work constantly because there's plenty of people's jobs as we're seeing right now, which is the point, can be completely remote or partially remote. And we could do office sharing or yes. flex spaces or whatever. And people just don't want to hear it and i think this is going to push that because wouldn't it be great if we could clear out a whole office building and turn them into classrooms which is an area where you know is more bent or labs or whatever it is it's more beneficial to our prospect which is teaching and research yeah and, you know or i mean companies will say there's company you know, some companies that are fully remote I, I i'd love to look at a chart that shows comparable companies in a similar industry with a similar size amount of employees and see what one company that's not fully remote and one company that is fully remote and see what the overhead differences are and how much more of a you know I hate to use these phrases now but like profit margin they have because of that right yeah
0: it's huge maintaining the space and you know the, the you know looking at, at at my office there there's probably certain people that you know really should be in the office uh, 40 hours a week and and it and for all those people it should also be the same 40 hours, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's a lot of us who, you know, maybe only need to be in two days a week and we can swap desks and um, you know, and you could probably cut the actual office space we need in half or uh, the, I mean, this is less, probably economically wise but more humane but you could cut you instead of cutting the office space in half you could double the amount of space that everyone has right you know everybody everybody in the who works in the building could have an actual office instead of a cube right um might be a shared office but it's still an office it's my all this is my office two days a week right But um, it has a door that closes when I need to take a phone call. (laughs) Yeah, that
1: the dream, right? (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) Someday, Greg, someday.
1: Someday. (laughs) I used to have an office when I first, my my first job I had an office. It was a closet, but it was great. My first Uh, job I had an office. uh, Uh, Shay gets an office because she meets with students all day, so she's lucky. But uh, yeah, I mean. So I have one more. So laid up some things. We already see massive effects of that, right? Because if people aren't putting money, if companies aren't putting, both people and companies aren't putting money into, quote unquote, what is really a waste, you can put it elsewhere. And it makes for a better, more efficient economy and also makes for better lives for people. Absolutely. So some other downstream effects of, okay, let's say you have more remote work. Another idea that I've been thinking a lot, I think that's a lot for remote work in particular, but also for other things like automated cars and some other technological improvements potentially coming down the road is, what does that do to our demographics for our society? Hmm. Because, you know, we kind of, America has this history and it's pretty particular to America. I'm not sure other countries have had the same effect, but we've had this weird uh, cyclical um, cyclical cycle. Yeah, that's redundant. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this weird cycle of like, we're a very agrarian, rural society. And then everyone came to the cities. And then there was this big, you know, exodus from the cities. And now everyone's going, you know, in the, in the 50s and 60s. And now it's happening again. People are going back to the cities. And I could see something like this if there's more remote work causing the reverse again. Because granted, people like to live in cities because they're cool. They're fun. There's lots of cool stuff to do. W- whatever. I don't live in a city. I can't speak to the pros of it. But if you can work remotely. And your income is not – this is a whole other – let me get to this first, actually. Mm-hmm. So income is location-based for a lot of people, right? Right. If you live in New York City and you're a software developer, you're probably making a lot more money than if you're a software developer in Oklahoma. However, if you're living in Oklahoma as a software developer but your company's in New York, how do they pay you? What scale do they use? Because, you know, say a cost of living adjustment for the, you know, different economies in different states or locations – makes complete sense but it starts to break down when you realize that "Mm, actually like we can't pay two people doing the same job two different things can we really so then you start being like looking more towards actually paying for doing the work that you need done uh which could be better good or bad i don't know what that looks like you know i'm sure companies are going to start having to figure that out but that aside greg if you let's put aside family or friends or whatever but if you can work from home and you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and that only gets you so far in the greater DC area. However, if you can move to Oklahoma, where I was told once, this is many years ago, but um, someone told me, "Yeah, my one-bedroom apartment is two hundred fifty dollars a month." What kind of house, what kind of property, oh, if that's what you are interested, in, could you buy in Oklahoma on a salary like that?
0: Absolutely. I mean, we um, the yes, if I could take the salary I I make here, which isn't you know, I it, it's not huge. Um, You know, it's it's, and I could take that back to where we just the last place we lived back to Mechanicsburg in Pennsylvania. um, We 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 could we could buy the nicest house in the neighborhood um, versus, you know, what, you know, we're looking at down here, which is like, well, maybe we could get like a a decently upgraded split level from 1978 that will probably need a new roof in in three years. Right. Um, You know, and it's yeah, your dollar takes you a lot further. And um And I think that – I do think that once we start getting to that point, you are going to see that. People are going to start to move first into the suburbs and then maybe even further to the point where people are moving, you know – all the way into you know like, like you say like oklahoma or um
1: and it is, then, it is already happening well that there is already suburbs are starting to grow again as opposed to decline like they were yes. the past 20 years um but I, it, I keep calling it a decentralization of society a little bit yeah like spreading a de- out
0: de- a deurbanization, and i think that you're gonna see obviously if if Things start to go much more remote and stay that way. You will see states like, you know, that have been so far kind of, you know, that have felt the brain drain um, that they are going to start to entice people to come back, you know, Um, and they're going to start making very attractive developments for people to, you know, to get people like me to move to Iowa. Um, but. I think another part of it is it's not just going to be the economic benefits of moving away from urban centers. But I do think that if this goes on long enough and the disease part of this creates enough of a psychic scar in people, um, you will see people just say, you know what? Maybe cities aren't as safe as I thought. Maybe Mm. being around that many people all at once is maybe that's a little dangerous. Um and when I say psychic scar like in a lot of ways, you know, people in, you know, the millennial generation are one of the reasons we are less inclined to home ownership than, you know, our older brothers and sisters and our parents is because we kind of came of age during a financial crisis that was driven by a housing market. So mortgages, just as a concept, seems sketchy as fuck to us. <laughs> um, so maybe we just, that whole thing seems kind of scary and unstable, so maybe we just stay away. Again, that's a part of it. Also, we're broke as hell, thanks to the financial crisis and other things, but... um But I do think that you could see a little bit of that where people just start to say, like, I think I just want a little bit more space between me and my neighbors. I want a little bit more automatic social distancing. So if something like this happens again, it's not going to completely detonate my entire world.
1: Right. And there's also to go back to the economics of that for a second, that will create I mean, there's always going to be more and less desirable locations and property, right? Location, location, location. Absolutely. But, you know, like parking your RV, RV in front of the, uh, what was that rock formation called in Picard? Um, uh,
0: the the uh, Vasquez rocks. Yep.
1: Nice um, callback. Yeah. So, but, but if people spread out a bit more and economic center or urban centers aren't quite as attractive, then you kind of would get more of a, not an equilibrium, but a more equalization of, housing costs, right? Because if, you know, if the house in the country and the house in the suburbs and the house in the city are all sort of equally viable for people of different kinds, like one's going to be more expensive than the other, but you might see homes out in the country get a little more valuable and homes in the city get a little less valuable because there aren't quite as much demand potentially. Well, right.
0: Yeah. Because, because some, some factor of any homes um, value is it's Location relative to job markets. Correct. Um, You know, that's one of the reasons housing costs down here in, you know, in in northern, you know, Maryland, where I live, are higher than they were in Mechanicsburg is because here I have access to, you know, three or four pretty, you know, pretty rich job markets down here, whereas in Mechanicsburg... It's not, even, it's not even multiple job markets that you're convenient to. It's two companies right. <laughs> that you right. can work for. So, you know, but now if the physical proximity to those job markets isn't as big of a factor, then yeah. You know, you're now proximity to urban centers also gives you proximity to a lot of amenities like restaurants, life, nightlife, entertainment. Sure etc that that is probably still going to be valuable to a lot of people um but you offset that with perceived dangers of living in the city um which are now more biological than they were um you know criminal but sure uh
1: yeah i have another chain in the another link in this chain then uh huh so and this is something that that dovetails into uh, other factors for sure um something that i think a lot about because you know you go through school and you learn about the constitution and the development of the United States and the autonomy of the states and the authority of states as well as local government and this sort of you know hierarchical structure we have where you know the federal government does these couple things and then the rest is left to the states and then those do these things and then they administrate out to local government. But as globalization has started to occur, as people have lost societally, culturally lost touch with like being proud to be a Pennsylvanian, for any reason whatsoever, as states have become many states are still homogenous, but more diverse than they were, you know, back in when the 13 colonies and other states were made, where it's like, this is a colony of German Catholics, <laughs> you know, period, right? Mm-hmm. This That's not as big a deal anymore. And begins to be a question of like, why do states? And so this fills into that of if you can kind of live and work wherever, why are there different policies in different states now, right? Now, there's always going to be administrative units, right? You need to have divisions of, of authority and divisions of administration because that's just like good good mechanisms and operations because you need to have offices everywhere that can handle things. However, you know, it's just like questions like well, lot, you know, people will ask as they move out of this idea of federalism, right? The idea of state power versus federal power in the United States, which is a very specifically American thing um, in this context you know, policy questions like, well, why is gay marriage legal in Pennsylvania, but not in New Jersey? What does that border really mean that changes anything about that policy? Obviously, that's not the case any longer, but 15 years ago, that was a right. legitimate question. You know, there's a lot of things now where it's like, well, this state is more wealthy and this state isn't. And I feel like this potentially, you know, de decentralization of people due to their work and companies starts to further erode the necessity or the maybe false necessity that people have that like states need to have as much authority over their interior as opposed to more nationwide policymaking does
0: that make sense yeah no that's that's an interesting question because on one hand i could imagine and this is getting further out because now we're actually starting to change the roles of like really big institutions and obviously i don't think that all of us Working remote is going to end up uh, creating constitutional amendments (laughs) that, like, eliminate the system of, you know, federalized states. But um, I could imagine a world where states, in order to maintain their relevance, and that really means state government, the people in state governments trying to maintain some power, um, where states almost become kind of like labor unions for the workers who live in them. Mm. So Pennsylvania would have a certain set of laws that says um, workers who live in Pennsylvania all are protected by laws X, Y, Z, regardless of what state they live in, right? Like the minimum wage for a person living in Pennsylvania is... $25 an hour even if the company they work for is based in you know San Jose that
1: gets messy quick
0: it does but that would be a way for states to maintain some um, bargaining power in the system Um, that feels bad to me I don't feel
1: like states should be competing with one another in that way like I feel like that leads to divisions and sectarianism
0: and things like that that aren't well beneficial for American society. They should and will though, right? Like um y- you know states do compete with each other now. They sure. compete with each other for residents and for businesses, tax dollars essentially, right? They want they want people to live there to you know because that's where the tax dollars come from. <laughs> but
1: also compete for federal tax dollars and
0: power. Yeah. Um so it's happening now. So I could see that happening but i also think that it's possible and depending on um how this all shakes out in the you know once once this is all over and all the dust settles um where do people's gratitude lie in how the uh pandemic was handled um if it turns out that people end up feeling more loyalty and gratitude to their the leaders of their state for their response than they do to the federal government, then I think you might actually see a little bit of a resurgence of state identification, state pride, interest in you know state and local politics because – and everything I'm about to say is not necessarily uh, support or endorsement of Governor Hogan's actions in the pandemic. I, I don't know – I don't have an opinion yet as to whether he's acting appropriately or um, – Inappropriately or overreacting or anything. I think it's a little early to say, and I haven't thought too hard about it. But um, if I come out of this and I say, Hogan did a great job, he really, you know, he was really proactive. And um, I'm really happy with the way that, you know, when the federal government was dragging their feet and had their head up their ass, Hogan came out and he did XYZ. And I really think that saved a bunch of lives. Um, Then, you know, now I might be more of a go Maryland kind of guy versus if. Coming out of this, I look at things and I say, you know, you know, I, I don't think Hogan reacted strongly enough. And, you know, I, I I think it was it wasn't really until Trump stepped in and really, you know, uh, got things under control that I think we really started making progress. Then maybe I'm like, well, what do I need the, the state for? If anything, he got in the way. So I think you I, I think we kind of have to wait and see how it goes. But I do think that coming out of this, you um people's kind of gratitude and loyalty could absolutely shift based on, again, how everything shakes out and how we start assigning blame and and reward.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think that
0: you could point to a lot of
1: situations and examples now where the states did step up and, and handle things. Part of that was because they, they were forced to or had to or were left to. But yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I don't know if I put that in the positive column for me personally, in my opinion, of what the, the trajectory of the world and and regionalism versus uh, being part of bigger units
0: I mean, right. I I I think generally, um, as a general rule, hierarchies bad, borders bad. So I would like to see um, broad strokes. You know, in a theoretical sense, I would like to see obviously uh, state borders disappear, right? And for there to be, you know, no more hierarchies of power, um, and you know, states just. Are just further levels of a hierarchy of power, right? And all of that I feel is bad. So obviously, I would be I would I would be much happier with a move towards you know um, a collapse of hierarchy and um, uh, an elimination of borders. But um, uh, but. That's just me. It's less about what I, well, most of my predictions are leaning towards things I want, but (laughs) Um, I don't think we get to, I don't think we get to the stateless classless society as our next step out of this. No, probably not. Uh, I want to reel the whole way back to what I view the negatives of remote
1: work. Sure. Because we laid out a lot of positives for companies and for people. But one thing I've learned, and I, once again, I think this is different for every person and I mean, I don't – I'm not like – I really, really – I'm not going to say I don't believe in it, but I really don't like the emphasis on introvert versus extrovert and all these categories of people. I don't like putting people in categories, but I'll say that you know everyone's got different preferences and personalities that are conducive to certain things. I will say that if I started a job that was purely remote and I never met my colleagues in person or maybe met them once at a Christmas party or something – I do not feel I would be as effective at my job. And like I said, I think it depends on the work and the person and the organization, but I feel like having a personal relationship that's been developed in person. And there is something mm-hmm. that's, that's, I'm, I mean, I'm one of the biggest technocrats you'll probably meet. I mean, I work in an IT adjacent job. I'm always looking for efficiency and utilizing tools that are helpful, but there is something important about person to person interaction that cannot be recreated via distance. With an addendum that you can get pretty close. I mean, I have lifelong friends that I've never met from playing video games with over the internet. Uh, so you could say that could happen online. But I think there's a lot more barriers to that.
0: Yeah. I, Especially I,
1: for people of different walks of life. Like, would I, I be close friends with my 45-year-old coworker who's got three teenage kids? Like, probably not. But I am because I talk to them at work every day. And, hey, we found out we both watch Game of Thrones. And, hey, we found out that we have this in common and whatever. And then, you know... You're much more the, the the social glue within an organization, for lack of a better term, that helps uh, people get, get their work done and communicate is is tough because, you know, to reference my friend who I referenced earlier, who is like completely remote. I'll talk about my work, like my coworkers and things like that. And I work in a particularly, you know, social environment. I work at a university. It's a lot of people. It's very not business focused, you know, so I know it's a particular context. But, you know, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I was to my coworker about blah, blah, blah today. And they said this. And he's like, why would you ever talk to your coworker about that? (laughs) And I was like, well, I don't know. You're just like shooting the shit by the water cooler or you stop in their office, ask them a question. You get talking. He's just like, I don't understand. Like, you know, for someone like that, work is work. You only talk to your coworkers about work for work. Nothing else happens.
0: And that's that would be a loss,
1: I think, um, for people. Yeah,
0: I think. Well, I think. I mean, part of part of me uh, wants to say, well, maybe it's only a loss because it's you and I who, you know, and I've got more years in it than you. um, Like we've spent our professional careers in face to face and in my case, small team environments. So I've developed all of my skills and my entire way of working based on that those environmental factors. So. I'm so used to it that a change would feel like a loss. But it, does that necessarily mean that the face-to-face, um, you know, casual interactions model is better? Maybe not. But it's also very hard for me to imagine um, an entirely remote world. Um, and, and, and I do think there are a lot of advantages to the face-to-face world. I mean, I think... Um, the ability to just walk over to someone's desk and say hey do you remember that thing it's, did we do what did we and to get that answer and to be able just to 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 quickly answer that question um i think is yep. is big and i also think that um if um if i i forget where i read this but it was some you know some you know business Jerk Don Draper type from the 60s wrote this list of like, you know, how to succeed in businesses. And one of the stupid little axioms was something like, um, if you want someone to know something, write a memo. If you want someone to do something, walk your ass over to their desk and ask them. And I have found in my professional life that that is absolutely true. Being able to face to face ask someone for something gets that thing so much faster and better. Then sending the email that says, hey, could you send me the thing? Yeah. Um, and little things like that that I and and put it, but But that is just little like, oh, I, I get I'm better at my job, you know, from a top down how the manager thinks I'm good at my job kind of way when I have people around me that I can interact with. Um, but I think there's another element that I feel that I have just gotten so much smarter about my job and my career and just the world by being able to have casual face-to-face conversations with other smart people around me um, that uh, I don't know that I could have had in a purely electronic sense. Just being yeah. able to sit and... Like, you know, the the little conversations that start when you just see you look over across and you see the person who's a, you know, in the cube across from you and they just read the same email you did and you could see the look on their face and you'd be like and you just make a face at them and then you guys start talking about it. And out of that 10 minute conversation comes some really good thinking. Yeah, um, that's I mean, maybe you get there remote, but I do think yeah. something is lost. Um, but there might be things that are gained that I can't see. Um, because yeah. i haven't been there long enough just to be fair um but uh yeah i mean i i and i do think that we are um the extroverts and the introverts we all feed on social interactions to a certain extent and um uh when we don't have them um there are very real effects this is why solitary confinement is torture right yeah totally and I don't think you can. In I don't think you can hold both thoughts in your head that um, solitary confinement is torture, and also we'll all be fine if we never actually interact with anyone other than um, our immediate family. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, it's and I'm I'm gonna. she's – hopefully she didn't hear me say this, but you know, just today, you know, like I said, we're on week two and a half with minimal social interaction, and Shay would definitely put herself in the introvert category, mm-hmm. you know, if she were to put herself in as a category. And, you know, this afternoon I was like, I could tell she was in a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a mood. And I was like, what, you know, what's wrong? Like, what's going on? And, and she's like, I'm not really sure. You know, I'm just like, and she's like, I think I'm just lonely. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, I get it. You know? And, and, and I, I have a very, and I'd say for me to say this stuff, I think is particularly like relevant because I live a very virtual life. I always mm-hmm. have. I've very been very into online video gaming my entire life. And a lot of my, you know, interactions with friends and stuff was online for I mean, I still have plenty of in-person interactions too, but you know, I, I'm I'm committed to that space. I'm not someone who, you know, to right. me, it's different, but you know, before I was in this podcast, I was playing video games for an hour and a half with my friends, you know, four other friends online, and like that is in many ways just as much fun as hanging out in person. We do both. It's great. It's a good balance. Um I think that to your point about like what I would call relationship management, relationship building, there is and maybe this is just a personal thing to your point about what we've experienced and what we've been found we're good at, but and I I do think you can get there digitally, but I think making a foundation with people is important. You know, one of the things that not to like Blow steam my own skirt, but I'm really, really good at relationship management in my job because I work in a job that I'm sort of like the person in the office who has to go to other offices to get things done. Mm-hmm. And if I just was like the guy who's was like, well, I'm just going to submit a ticket to IT and then hope it gets picked up in however many weeks, like that's not going to make me effective in my job. And maybe some people probably find me annoying, but I don't think they do because they answer my, the, you know, when I call, go to call them or walk in their office, they don't seem annoyed. They, they pick up the phone, they mm-hmm. respond. To your point about you know getting things done and and that that thing that business weird weirdo said like that's totally true in, in my <laughs> line of work and i think that carries over digitally once you establish the foundation in person then you can very much maintain it going forward because you know just the little things like i mean everyone's brain works a little different with this stuff go listen to hell internet they've been talking about it a lot about like how you visualize things when you're reading or when you're yes. thinking and and for me personally like knowing someone's what they look like, knowing their tone of voice, knowing their mannerisms. When I see an email come through or a Skype message or whatever it is, whatever digital technology we're using, I can put a lot more into that and understand a lot more because I have all that awareness. Even just just visually being able to, I'm a very visual person in my brain, seeing them say it or thinking what they're thinking when they're typing it or whatever, that really helps me feel connected and know who I am as opposed to just like, you know, the interaction you have with like a chat bot.
0: Yeah. Right. But I should point out here that everything we're talking about is in some ways a privileged conversation because you and I are both um, privileged in ways that make us well suited to excel in a traditional face to face office environment. Right. We are both um, not unattractive white dudes who come from, you know, um, you know, upper middle class professional backgrounds like, you know, we learned how to talk in an office environment because that's the way we, you know, that's because our parents kind of came with that stuff pre-programmed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we grew up in households of essentially professionals. Right. Um, so. There wasn't a learning curve. You know, my dad was a business guy. So when I got to, you know, my first job interviews, I already had a good sense of how business guys talked. And, you know, I knew the basic social niceties of the, you know, professional managerial class because that's the class I grew up in. So I didn't have to struggle with that. Um and, you know, the office environments, as they're currently constructed, reward certain personality traits and punish others. And I, my, a lot of my personality traits are well adapted to this world. And also I, I, you know, came out of the oven with a lot of them. So sure. I have some advantages there and a digital, uh, working environment, um, Is gonna, um, uh, you know, reward different personality traits. And it's gonna give a lot of people who had disadvantages in that traditional office culture, um, it's gonna level that playing field for a lot of people. And in, and that's a good thing for them. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we've all worked with some people who have some hygiene issues. Yeah. And some of that might be there within their control and some of it might not be. Um, And some of the people I've worked with with hygiene issues, I uh, have to assume it's not in their control because how could they not know? Um, (laughs) It's like you're you're 45. I can't be the first person who's told this to you. Um, But, you know, but like those people are no longer at a disadvantage. People who might have, you know, um, physical, you know, their, their appearance might not be, um, might not be conducive to you know getting you know the the same kind of attention in an office you know that's that's great for them people who um you know because of their class background maybe um you know maybe come off much better in um you know when they're typing out in a chat than if they actually had to say those words because maybe they've got a southern accent that uh carries with it a lot of prejudice and it disappears so i'm just saying there's a lot of ways that you know I just want to point out like, um, because the, the office environment, you know, gives me a lot of privileges. I don't want to act like a, an alternative is necessarily bad because it, you know, um, neutralizes a lot of those privileges. Yeah. I mean, there could be, it could be a different direction too,
1: where the privilege of growing up with a lot of technology and and these kind of things could also contribute to our success there too, where other people might have that. But I think overall your, your points are well made, um. Yeah, all, all I'm just to think about, I mean, I, I think per me personally, like I've determined that if I could have my ideal world, it would be, you know, a shared office space and like a 3-2 or a 2-3 split. Yep. That would I, be, I, I think, what I would like prefer personally.
0: I think I would agree. Um, And by 2-3 by three or 3-2 three, split, you mean like you're going to work from home two days a week and work in the office three days a week or some variation. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that would... Um, for me too. And and, and but also part is that part of that is just because, you know, one of those is, you know, just more comfortable. Uh w- as we talk about this, um it occurs to me that I think if you currently own stock in a company that produces um traditional like office clothing, sell sell sell. <laughs> Um, I, 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 I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, I think about clothes a lot and I shop for clothes a lot and, um, and, and, and just coincidentally this, this week, um, was when our, our, our yearly bonus was paid out. So a certain share of that is going to go towards responsible things, but a certain share of that is just going to go to, uh, you know, money for me to spend on dumb shit. And usually when I have money to spend on dumb shit, I look at clothes and shoes because that's who I am. Um, and as I've been just kind of looking and shopping and like seeing things and I realize because I don't know how long this work from home thing is going to go on. And when it ends, I don't know what people are going to be wearing in the office. Right. So if I'm looking at a pair of shoes and it's like, you know, a pair of like dress shoes, I'm like, how many times a year am I actually going to wear those now? Because, you know, I don't think we're going to go to the completely virtual world right away. Um, Certainly not me in my life. I work for a grocery store and, you know, um, you know, even just getting to the point where optional work from home, you know, that felt like a, oof, we oh, that was, a, that was a hard push. Um, yeah. But you figure, look, if most of the office, by the time we get back there, most of the office has been working from home for the last 60, 90, 120 days, and they've been working from home wearing, you know wearing sweatpants and sneakers or, um, you know, even just your cozy, stretchy jeans. You know, I think on that first day back, a lot of people are going to look in their closet and they're going to look at those stiff, traditional, you know, um, dress shoes. And they're going to look at the, they're going to look at the, you know, kind of, um, you know, stiff, uh, you know, dress shirt. And they're going to say, I don't know, man. And I think that the the casualizing of office wear, uh, more so for men than for women, um, I think it's happening faster in men's wear. We're, well, we're catching up to where women are, I should yeah, say. Yeah, if that's the case, because um, women
1: seem like they can wear them like, is that dress clothes? I don't actually know.
0: <laughs> right. Well they, have, well, they have a lot more flexibility within the professional wear, um, but... You know, I think that, you know, a lot of guys it was kinda like when, you know, like people just stopped wearing ties, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we are at this point we are gonna put the nail in the in the coffin of, you know, the wool dress slacks and the dress shirts and the leather, you know, the leather leather soled shoes. And um I, I think that's that's just where we're gonna be. Um uh, at the end of this. I just don't think people are going to come back. So, you know, I'm looking at things and I'm looking at, you know, um, you know, I'm looking at like in my closet and, uh, you know, some of my chinos that I wear to work like eh, some of these things are looking a little tired. Maybe I should think about replacing these. And then I'm like, should I, though? Yeah.
1: Maybe I should buy be buying a nice new pair of jeans um, or whatever.
0: Yeah, because I mean, certainly for the next, I don't know, quarter the see the spring, certainly I'm probably not going to be going into the office with any regularity might extend into the summer, you know? So, um, I just, it's, uh, I think that's going to be a big one. And, you know, and then once the professional wear deformalizes even further than it has, um, that's going to, you know, that's going to put, yeah, I'm sorry, Brooks brothers. It's going to be a rough couple of years for you boys. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. I mean,
1: imagine how much those com- companies must, like have already shift like had to shift their business model. Cause like there was a time when if you were a man of our age, Greg, we would have I mean, never mind. I'm not gonna include you in this, but if you were a man of our age, like you would have had to have like a suit for every day of the week. And yep. I do not. You probably do, but I do not. Like most men do not at, at this age in this sort of a professional level. Cause like most places, like, yeah, have ditch the tie, it's khakis, some sort of other dress slack with a button down or maybe a polo even mm-hmm. i mean there's there's other examples of like even more like my- and that's a pretty formal workplace at right. this stage right a lot yeah. of places are like yeah t-shirts and jeans whatever you want go crazy you know and there's really no you know or maybe you have a business meeting you wear something nicer okay fine but like when you're when you when everyone's only maybe gonna move to having like a sunday best for business meetings like yeah
0: <laughs> no i mean i think that's that's the way it's gonna be you know you're gonna have um And obviously, I'm speaking in the menswear world, and I know that that's a little exclusionary, but it's it's the world I know. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's really when I think about it, it's like, how many sport coats do I need? Right. I mean, honestly, when I really think about it, if if I really what do I need, need, need um, one suit, one dress shirt, one tie? Because when I think about the times in my life as it's currently constructed, what do I need? I need, you know... If I'm going to a job interview at a, you know, at kind of an old fashioned place, then yeah, it's probably suit and tie. Or if I need to, you know, if I need to, you know, somebody's getting married. Um, but even that, you know, most I mean, with with my friend group, I mean, if if I show up in a tie at all, I'm overdressed. <laughs> um, it's so then this idea of like, well, I need seven different pairs of chinos three pairs of like proper wool dress slacks, two or three sport coats, two or three suits, and then seven or eight dress shoes in various shades of black and brown and various styles. No, 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 no. Instead, it's like, yeah, you know, a couple pairs of like comfortable, stretchy, like performance jeans, um, you know, some decent T-shirts and hoodies and... Like I'm, I'm good. It's just you know a much more functional style of dressing because especially now, like I'm not even I'm not even leaving the house to the point where like ah hey, you know we're going out to eat. Let's uh, you know maybe I'll put on a shirt with a collar, like just to be fancy. We're not <laughs> shit. We're not doing that for the next couple weeks or months. I know my my one coworker. I was talking
1: to her. You know to your point, it's funny. She was like we we're talking. I'm like oh how are you adjusting to work from home life? And she's like. I don't think I have enough leisure wear for this. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't think so either. (laughs) Like, I think I need to order some sweatpants or something because, you know, I'm not used to having this much time to spend in in those things. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a very fair, like an interesting idea. Um, I think it's definitely like, I mean, I think some places will just revert, but I think there's gonna be a lot of places where it's like much similar to this, where it's like the argument becomes a little moot where it's like, well, we all just did this for six months. What's the big deal? Right.
0: And, and it, it's it's this idea, and I think this applies to a lot of this, of people are going to get used to some of the changes, mm-hmm. and they're not going to want to give them up. Um, and, and that's going to apply not only to just the kind of the casual changes due to uh, shifts in the workplace, um, but also, you know, in terms of commerce. You know, if you thought we were, we were uh, shopping online a lot before this... Yeah. I mean, people are going to enter whole new categories of what they're willing to buy online. Um, People who were skeptical about buying groceries online um, a month ago, a lot of them are going to take the plunge, you know, this month and next month and say, you know what? Actually, this is kind of nice. I can't believe I used to go to the grocery store and spend a fucking hour there walking around putting the same hundred things into a cart every week and then taking them out of the cart and then putting them back in the cart and then putting them in my car. And then, you know, and people are going to realize what a bummer it is.
1: Yeah. One of those people is probably fucking me because I fucking hate going to the grocery store. It's like one of my least favorite tasks to do. And we had our first grocery delivery and I was like, this is pretty nice. Yeah. I could get used to this. Uh, And, you know, it was great to be like, you know, you ever get like, I mean, you know, usually have your routine of things you buy all the time, you know, they're at the grocery store, but like, you know sometimes you're just like i don't know where this is guess what when you're searching for on um, peapod or whatever it's just like no oh, here i'll just type it and search it oh there it is cool not like i'm gonna try this aisle i'm gonna try that aisle yeah. oh it, okay well why is peanut butter next to the bread Shouldn't mean in the comments i don't know like you just like stupid things like that where i mean i'm sure you have a whole list of things you could say about that greg but um <laughs> yeah this is my entire life man um <laughs> but yeah i mean like you know i think what it, i mean we had the first one was free because it was like our first time or whatever but i was like how much does it cost it's like eight bucks it's like I mean, I don't love not being able to pick my own produce or cuts of
0: meat, but I'm sure we're going to start getting options for that built into this, right? Like, well, it's yeah. And and that's, you know, uh, spoiler alert. That's most people's complaint about uh, delivery um, is, you know, the uh, on the fresh. They like to be able to pick things out. But a lot of people, if that's their complaint. But, you know, once they once they've done it and once they've tried it and once they've found all the other conveniences that come with it, they might be willing to make the trade. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they might start saying, you know what? I'm going to just get everything delivered except my meat and produce. Yeah. And I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to be there for 20 minutes. Right. I'll be in and out. Um, Like, yeah, but, but so something like that, like people are, a lot of people are going to take the plunge on that. Um, The, uh, the, and They're going to get used to that and they're not going to want to go back. And I also think that another area where you're going to see a similar kind of ratcheting effect is um, a lot of restaurants that did not deliver (laughs) are getting on that real quick. Yeah. As more and more, you know, local governments basically shut down, um, you know, restaurants and bars. Yeah. I mean, Um, I just saw that
1: I saw posts and this is one area that I think a lot about because – much of my expendable income goes to beer <laughs> and like craft beer and, you know, to a lesser extent going out to eat because like it's expensive, but I love to do it. Um, But it's, it's still very much a, I'm not a sus- sustenance go out to eat person. Like mm-hmm. we cook our food, you know, nearly every yeah. meal for the week, but going out as a treat and I go try to go to nice places and places I like local stuff. Um, And thinking about this, I realized that a, and we don't we don't want to be negative, but like a lot of places are going to go out of business and that's going to suck. They are. Uh, but I'm trying to think about what the long term economic impact of some of these commercial changes are, is that like, you know, because a lot of these people are delivering through services, right? Right. Like, is there a world to you take a positive view where intermediary companies like Grubhub or Peapod or whatever else allow enable small businesses to not only survive, but thrive in a more decentralized environment because you can pay someone to go to the butcher and the grocer and the cheese store and whatever and get that stuff shipped to your house instead of like, well, I don't really feel like going, I'm just going to go to Giant and just get, you know, and yeah, the meat's not as good. Sorry, Greg. And yeah, you know, the cheese isn't as good. Sorry, Greg. But like, you know, I'm not going to go to six places every day. I want to go to the grocery store. But if I can order or do a subscription service to a CSA or whatever else, like, uh, are you more likely to to buy those things? I, I don't know. It's an interesting yeah, no, idea. I, I do
0: think that one of the, the sectors of the economy they're going to open up are going to be, like you say, like these kind of middlemen um, where and you see them, you know, you've got Grubhub and Uber Eats that are kind of already there in the restaurant space um, that are trying to like help connect the dots for, you know, um, uh, for groceries or not grocery stores, restaurants. Um, so the question is what are some other areas where that's going to be important? And maybe it's something like there's a service that somehow tries on clothes for you. <laughs> like, they, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. or, or I mean, or, or there
1: just, there could just be some serious like supply chain gains by, developing some pathways for smaller I mean Amazon's always talked about their drone stuff which is kind of a, a thing but like you know if we do get more automated cars you know there's nothing you know you, you start limiting drivers or whatever you could have a car show up at at a grocer they put the stuff in the back and then it goes to your house and you walk out and unload it like there's some things there that could really be interesting I, mean, I just saw a post from a, a restaurant that not actually where we live now where we used to live but uh, they're shipping out their bar and restaurant and They're doing um, grab and go cocktails like they're mixing them and putting them in bottles with corks at the bar and then you can grab it and go and it's like labeled with their branding and stuff. And, you know, another restaurant and brewery I really like near the area is they're delivering beer you know, you have to certain, you know, certain things like within five miles and over fifty right. dollars or whatever. But like, you know, those pathways are starting to open up. And I think, like you said, once people get used to some of this, it's like, boy, I could just really go for a crawler from wherever right now. And if I can just hit a button and it shows up like, yep. I mean, I haven't really used like the Grubhubs or the Uber Eats of things yet. Um, I'm just but really, you will. I'm really fucking cheap. But uh, yeah, you I mean, will. there's a question of in this current crisis, like, I mean, you saw Amazon said they're going to start paring down the shipping of non-essential things because their warehouses are becoming hotbeds of coronavirus. Um, You know, I worry that the, the negative trend is that you move further towards monopolization of these areas and everyone just orders everything through Amazon because it's convenient as opposed to. But then again, Amazon does service a lot of small companies, too. Like a lot of businesses exist through the Amazon infrastructure.
0: Yeah. So. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that you're going to see that. I think that there's going to be, um, you know, you're going to find, and maybe this is actually a great thing for some restaurants. Um, and when I say restaurants, maybe that's not even the right word, but, um, you know, there, there are probably a lot of great chefs out there. Um, you know, who have great concepts for menus, but the cost of, Also, designing a physical space where people are going to come eat that food and designing that space, um, securing that space, setting that space up, all of that, right? That's a lot of cost. Yeah, I mean, the overhead on
1: a restaurant is huge.
0: Absolutely. But imagine if you could run a restaurant that is really just a kitchen and um, because it's all delivered, there's no, there is no dine-in element. There is no brick and mortar element. You could run it out of like a centralized kitchen. You know, you could build a big kitchen facility that um you know that 20 different um you know quote unquote restaurants could operate out of. And um you know and 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 uh almost like almost like uh you know stalls in a farmer's market, right? Yeah. You rent your space and you know you um and and maybe even the the centralized you know facility they manage the delivery you know yeah they've got the delivery drivers and and but imagine how much flexibility that gives a chef right right they don't um you know it it lowers the barrier for entry in the same way that um. um Home recording equipment and, you know, uh, computerized recording, you know, on, on, you know, consumer computers and consumer gear and then distribution networks like SoundCloud, how that's revolutionized the music industry because it lowers the barrier of entry for so many people like Billie Eilish, like, you know, she did that shit in her bedroom and released it on SoundCloud and now she's the biggest artist in the world. But you know, the barrier for entry for her 20 years ago, she probably never would have appeared. But, you know, how many talented chefs have want to do cool shit, but they can't because it's like, well, now I've got to get a restaurant. I got to get a space. And then we got to, you know, and then, well, what if the food is great, but the, you know, but the restaurant's poorly managed. So the tables are always dirty and now everybody hates it, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, and and you've already, you've already started to see this happen in this space, like with things like. And this, this goes for a lot of other spaces we're talking about, too, where it's like you started to see the effects of this in kind of like new industries or kind of industries flipped in a different direction. Like to go back to our office for a second, like, you know, shared spaces or workspaces that people have. Right. They just they just rent an office. because They want to get out of their house or whatever. Yeah. See more of that in the food space. You have like test kitchens where it's like this is a place somebody owns and they set up six little kitchens in it and they yep. rotate out people. Food trucks are a huge thing. Similarity, right? Like part of it is regulate regulatory, which isn't great, but like you you don't have to do a lot of things to have a food truck as opposed to having a restaurant, right? Right. Um, you can go wherever, you can be somewhere, you can do catering, you can do that. You're very flexible. And now you've had you, and then you've seen these like sort of symb- symbiotic relationships develop between wineries and breweries and distilleries, which are a very big person to business industry right now. Where, well, some of those places. It's, like I said, it's a lot of work and a lot of space and a lot of overhead to run a restaurant for usually very low profit margins. Like restaurants right. are some of the worst profit margins in, in for any business. And however, someone has a food truck and they can just drive it up to your brewery and you don't have to follow any of the regulations surrounding if, you have, if you're serving food. As long as the trucks follow on their own regulations on what they need to do, then you've lowered a lot of barrier to entry and costs for both people. Yep. And they have the same backlash. So yeah, I think it's already happening. I mean, it's really interesting to see like I wonder what we'll develop for like better food delivery. Like what do, what do we use to keep things warm? You know, what do we use to keep things fresh? Like how is, how is it packaged? Cause like I've, I've always been hesitant to do it because you know, if I think about like getting a really good burger from one of my favorite places, but it's like, it's going to come like I'll toss it around in a little like styrofoam container. Like that's going to feel kind of sad to me. And I, yeah. you know, I put food on a pedestal because like one of my hobbies and things I find interesting, but like that's going to, re- it's going to remove some of the allure, right? It's not going to taste as good. I mean, it probably tastes the same. But, um, however, I have been thinking, to your point, like, boy, I could really go for something I didn't fucking cook.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and, you know, and, 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 but also not McDonald's again. Right. And, um, you know, I, I don't want
1: to, I feel like we, we've we been focusing on like one aspect of this greater thing. I don't want to belabor it too much. There's some other things I wanted to talk about. Um, but maybe it just like, lightning round a couple things that i think
0: well i are- think there's a tangential thing and i think this will this might segue nicely for you but in keeping with that idea of the brick and mortar space maybe no longer being as essential and it, now it's more about delivering the actual thing to you just directly um so universal's just starting to release their first run films on just on digital i saw that it's crazy and Um, they're not going to be the last ones, I think. I mean, we've already seen this happen in
1: media spaces, right? Like we saw it happen in the music industry to your point. CDs went away. You know, we just buy our music digitally. You can just download it. We saw it. I mean, it's mostly done, but, you know, there's still some stuff, but like almost entirely done in the video game industry. Very few people go out and buy discs or I mean, I guess they put them on like flash drives now sometimes, but like you can just download the game. Yes. And play it. So it makes sense. I mean, like, and obviously streaming and stuff is a huge thing, but like it has taken over as opposed to DVDs. But yeah, movie theaters is the last real vestige of like that older view of media.
0: Yeah. And movie theaters are going to be, I mean, they have already been hurting. Yeah. I think you're going to see some theaters close. I I think we're going to see a couple major chains close. And I think we're going to see a lot of locations close. And that's. Again, that is sad for everyone who's going to lose a job as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anybody who then loses access to a theater experience as a result, that sucks. I yeah. mean, m- my general feeling is even in the most podunk towns, there's a good movie theater and a bad movie theater <laughs> that yeah. you can choose from. So if one of them shuts down, you're still probably OK. But um, I mean, I, I I do think that there is some value to the to the actual in theater experience, and I would be I think I would be sad if movie theaters went the way of like video game arcades. Yeah. Um, but or, I think it's a pretty good
1: analogy. Yeah. I mean, um, in some ways, you could view it sim- more a different analogy it could be like concerts. Yeah, it's very different in some ways, but in the same way, you're, you're sort of I think it's I think it's going to go more that route. People go to probably fewer concerts than maybe people did like 20 years ago, I would guess. But people pick and choose the concerts they go to. You right. Know, and just like we have, like we talked about this on the show before. It's like, I go to like three movies a year. However, for me, the movies I really care about, I feel like I'm getting the pristine experience when I go to a theater. That might be right or wrong, given on, given the theater and the experience I have. But for me to watch it for the first time in this, like if it's a Marvel film or something that's important to me, especially a more spectacle movie like that, like to not have the full sound and and like my TV is like, it's OK, but it's not the greatest. Like, I mean, that stuff will change, too. People will invest more in their home digital infrastructure as this change. But I, I just feel like, nah, like I'm not going to enjoy it as much. It's I'm going to see the seams more. I'm not, you know, I'm just not as immersed as I am in
0: a theater. Right. Yeah. But but think about it this way, too. Look, anytime I go to the theater, it's a gamble. Right. Am yeah. I going to be sitting next to some shitty teenagers? Uh, is the projectionist going to fuck up and the, now the, the six inches at the top of the screen are cut off, um, is, you know, it, is there going to be a fuck up with my reserved seating and now, you know, I have to have some problem because I, I'm in 6F and this guy's also in 6F, you know? Um, well, the movie's coming out. What if it's sold out? Yeah or what if what if it's only what if the only showing i can go to is at 11:30 um you know yeah so again i enjoy the theater experience but there's a lot of advantages to the at home experience that yeah sound and picture won't be as good but mm, it's also you're pretty much guaranteed what kind of experience you're going to have. There are many fewer variables, but I think at this point, um, universals making the right move, um, in going with with a digital release, um, versus what you're hearing like again with James Bond, uh, with Fast and the Furious, with new mutants where they're just pushing it back so they can get a big box office. Black Widow, yeah. Yeah. Black Widow. Um, because I think that by the time we get to the release date of those movies, everybody else will be doing the digital route because it because also economically. Right. So right now Universal's charging like it's the same. I think you're paying 20 bucks for a 48 hour rental, which is steep as far as digital purchases go. Right. Typically, the 20 dollar purchase is for now I own the, you know, like uh, Rise of Skywalker is 20 bucks now. And then you own it. Um, whereas this would be it's 20 bucks and you've got the 40 hour rental. But that's that's 20 bucks that Universal sees probably almost all of. Yeah, that was my at, question is what as is, what is, to is the, the, the cut they share with a theater chain? Plus, there's also the advantage here of um, your. Your. Um, your, your opening night box office or opening weekend box office, whatever it is, is constrained by the number of physical seats available times showings available, right? It's a finite number. Um, so, but if you're, but you could sell the, the digital premiere theoretically many more times that, right? Yeah. Like in, so if, if all the if all the seats for a particular movie are are sold out on Friday for for me in my area, um, you, they get no money from me. As opposed to um, the digital release where nope, I doesn't matter. They they can sell it to every every person in the state if they wanted to or if enough people wanted it. But so the financial move, I would imagine, in the rough math seems to come out on the studio side there. Um, now there's all kinds of questions about like, well, how the hell do you market and promote something like this? Um, you know, as opposed to the, the, the excitement you can generate and the FOMO you can generate of like opening night, you know, um, all that stuff. But I would argue, well, like, look, if Game of Thrones can generate the numbers it generated for, you know, something that like, it's just going to premiere on everybody's TV at nine o'clock on Sunday. I think you could do that with Fast and the Furious. Yeah, I mean
1: the streaming networks and premium networks have already paved the way for this for sure. To your point about like game of Thrones and other things. I, I question a couple of questions I have around it is like, Hey, like I said, that, that breakdown of like what, you know, if I spend $15 to go to the movies, what's the cut for different places, right? Like if, if you're looking at box office numbers, like what's that number derived from? And I think that, people's economic decision-making is going to be affected in a different way by, for example, like spending $15 a month for Netflix or Hulu or whatever I pay for doesn't really bother me. Paying $15 to go to the movies, while a little expensive, doesn't typically bother me. It's a movie I want to see. However, if you're not going to charge me $15 to watch Black Widow on my TV as opposed to as part of a streaming package or whatever, mm, that's going to make me question that choice. Now, I'm probably still going to do it in those Lit, those narrow situations but like you said like to your point is this a, a buy to own is this a buy for 40 hours do you make premier premium packages for streaming where well netflix you know disney plus is 12 dollars a month seven dollars a month whatever but if you pay 15 dollars a month you can get access to all the movies when they come out as opposed to six months down
0: or whatever like oh i i think there's the, they're gonna get the pricing right and they're gonna get the model right um I mean, I would say I'm in for 20 bucks to see a movie um, in the theater, it, you know, once I've once I've given Fandango three dollars to hold my seat for me and, you know, all that stuff like it's I, I'm up to I'm up close to 20 dollars anyway, but but they'll get the pricing right. They'll figure it out. And I think, you know, you're the idea that, you know, and you know, they're going to do it like what if at the beginning of the year you basically bought a Marvel season pass at a right. discounted rate, right. you know? However, here's, um, here's the rub though,
1: because when me and my three friends go to the movies to see Black Widow, we're all buying a ticket. When Black Widow is coming out on a digital release on our TV, only one of us is paying for it. And the four that's of us are a, watching and that's it.
0: A, that's a real concern. And, and, but I, but I also would imagine it would be very easy for um, somebody like me uh, who works for these movie theaters to math that out and to model out, okay, here's, you know, here's how many bodies essentially you're going to get at a home, you know, per purchase at a home viewing versus how many you get. um, Yeah. The other way you'd model it out and you'd build that pricing in. I, I, I mean, could I- see further, further. There's already been a lot of discussion of like locking down
1: on sharing accounts and things like that. This, this kind of move would, cause this is such a huge industry, right? Like multiple billions of dollars. Yep. You know, even single movies can make a billion dollars. That's like that's, a that's never going to happen on a streaming level. But if, you know, they're going to they're going to be really keen on account sharing or what's to stop a community or a bar or a restaurant being like, hey, guys, uh, Black Widow comes out tonight. We bought it. It's going to be up on the TV if you want to come check it out at the restaurant. Like or we're going to display well, it in the park. There's probably some rules you can build around that. But I think it's ah, the same Purdue rules, Forest. the
0: same rules that prevent that from happening at a large scale with like pay-per-view sports. Mm. Um. Not familiar with that area. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know how it works either, but generally it's, it's, it is pretty illegal, I think, to, um, as a, like a bar to like put on a pay per view and, you know, um, and then let people watch it for free. But I don't, I don't understand all the ins and outs, but, um, but also if you're, you, you do the math on it. And you figure out, like, all right, well, how many of those situations do we think are actually going to happen? And is that outweighed by the volume we would get by being able to do this digitally? Plus the cost savings of not having to physically ship, um, you know, the films to theaters. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's now they go on big ass hard drives. But, you know, it used to be it was just big fucking canisters of physical film. Right. Um you know, so there's a lot that goes into this that um, I just can't imagine how the numbers don't work out in the studio's favor. Right. Because um, all the overhead of having a theater, playing employees,
1: run the theater. I mean, I know they make a lot of their money off concessions. I don't know what I'd be curious to see, so like, typically at $50 that gets divided into different places. But if,
0: if the way I believe it works is for most of the big name pictures, the negotiation with the theaters and the distributors or whoever the middleman is here, Um, Is typically in like it's something like um, the studio keeps 100 percent of the ticket sales in the first three days or the first week or whatever. And then it's a percentage that shifts the further you go, I think. Mm -hmm. um so essentially the during the opening weekend the theater's only making money on concessions and then as you go further down you know further from release date the the theater's making progressively more money per ticket but it might not be the case anymore that was the case when i was at uh you know um media college in the (laughs) in the bush years (laughs) so um but um it uh again, I think the math is going to end up working out. And I mean, also, but also the value proposition of the customer. Hey, man, imagine being able to pause it when you got to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Or, you know, he gets
1: sleepy. You just come back later. Yeah. Or watch it a second time tomorrow not pay full price again. Um, Yeah. Interesting. I I mean, there's so many. because I want to move into something slightly different mm-hmm. if you're up. But yes. I'm just going to quick lightning a couple of things that I think. Are other things that would change based on this new, more remote, more virtual world? Uh, like gyms and health, gym and health, right? Like I'm going out to run more because I can't go to my gym. Shay is using video services. People are buying Peloton bikes, right? You know, whatever those are. Uh, what, what's the, you know, Is there a more of a desire for more home gym equipment and and services?
0: I think in the short term, yes. But I think in the long term, I actually think that gyms and health clubs um, will actually see a resurgence um, as part of what I'm predicting will be a larger trend of a resurgence of, you know, kind of like social gatherings that are I guess like semi-public social gatherings you know there there a lot of think pieces were written years ago about how America no longer has bowling leagues and um you know because we're not going to church anymore these sorts of gatherings where you would get together with people who are like they're not like your friends right mm-hmm. but they're also not your co-workers they're't your family they're this kind of you know like you ha- you had these social bonds that were, f- formed in, you know, in the the Rotary Club and all these other things that have kind of gone away. Um, and I think that you will see a resurgence of that sort of thing, because if we are all working remotely for most of the week, we are going to crave more social interactions. Yeah. And so those things are going to come back. And I think that gyms will be a part of that because it will give people a someplace to go that isn't their home and isn't yeah. the mall um, and 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 to give some social interaction and to give you some of that and i think you'll get the same thing you'll i think you'll see i mean it won't be bowling leagues but you'll see that kind of stuff come back
1: no i think that's actually a really good point because i think about think about being like you know is said someone who's a little more introverted or whatever to use that phrase like they describe the end of a workday as being like socially exhausting yes right and when you remove that, they're going to crave social interaction. I also think that, you know, and there's some other things like being at home all day. Like I said, we're going to gain so much time back from a lack of a commute. You're going to have so mm-hmm. much more energy. I also think there's a trend here for the gym and health is like a trend based on everyone getting nervous of getting sick and dying is like a trend towards healthy lifestyles and how mm-hmm. to navigate. A, and even this is one negative thing. You know, when I go to the office, Shane, I'm talking about this, I, you know, I wear a Fitbit and I get. I usually get between four and 7,000 steps a day just walking around the building, walking to and from my car. You know, my the bathrooms a very long way from my office. You know, at home, I'm getting, like, 200. So, I have to be very purposeful to, like, go the fuck outside and go for a walk or yeah. a run or whatever. So, like, that's something that people are going to have to learn to manage differently. I think it's very similar for food. Like, Greg, I've lost five pounds in the past two weeks. Good for you. Because... I'm managing my diet entirely myself. Um Interesting. And what'd you say? Oh, I said interesting. Because my big I mean, this is a personal thing, I'm not gonna say this apply to everybody, but my biggest problem is like social eating and social pressure to eat, but also mm-hmm. free food in the workplace. People mm-hmm. bring donuts. Cool. Guess what? I don't buy donuts. Now, I will say this starting rubber band a little bit because as you're stuck in your house and you're going to realize this, you start to get really bored with what you're eating and you want to have and you've no other excitement in your life. And the excitement starts to be like, ooh, I could like buy ice cream like that would be pretty exciting. So like we bought some Ben and Jerry's and like, so, you know, I mean, like, you know, it's, and also you get tired of just like cooking every meal. So you eh, maybe I'll put some frozen things in the fridge like
0: if boredom eating explains about 50 of the pounds that I'm carrying around right now still. So believe me. Yeah. Um I get it. But 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 you're right. It is a lot easier to manage because now I'm managing my own pantry. Right. Exactly. And that's that's where my
1: control comes in. I'm really bad at controlling myself. And this is like personal. Other people are very different. I'm not prescribing. This is going to be like a societal change. But I think people's relationship with food will be different because of all these things we're talking about. And, And people are going to be cooking more during this time. They're going to be checking out recipes. People will find some people will find a passion for cooking. Some people will realize they really fucking hate cooking. Um, and, you know, that's always going to have these ripple effects in the other areas. We Talk about, about restaurants and, and, and bars I, and things. I
0: think that you're going to see as a result of all of this, I think you're going to see a increase in the number of vegetarians. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because we are going to I, I, I think we are going to deal with some meat shortages. Well, I mean, I mean. Among the things at grocery stores that
1: were, at least I went yesterday morning and I tried to go early because I was hoping, oh, maybe it'll be better. You know, it was pretty well stocked, my local giant. Yeah. But the things that were missing were toilet paper, a lot of staples like butter and bread, but there was like no meat.
0: Well, so yeah. And I think that's, that I think is, that's a demand shortage right now. That's just people stocking up and hoarding. Right. But I think you're going to start to see supply shortages. As, um, um, you know, the, as the supply chain starts to get disrupted by a farm shutting down. And also, I think that people will they'll just get a little more skeptical about the safety of their products. Yeah. And people are going to feel much more safe with products that come in a box than they are with meat. Mm hmm. Um, and I would say they'll probably also feel safer about vegetables and fruit than they will about meat. So I think you'll see a, not necessarily a conscious shift, but I think people are going to start eating less and less meat as a result of this, um, just because of supply issues and then, um, and also maybe a little bit of squeamishness, but then a lot of people are going to realize that they're already like 90% vegetarian and they might just go all the way. Um, it's weird cause I actually feel quite the opposite about the really? squeamishness because
1: I don't think, I'm not saying this is your prediction is wrong, but like, because when I think of how stuff is, is produced and cleaned, like example, meat, it's usually at this point cut more or less in a factory. Maybe someone at the grocery store is handling it, but like, I'm going to take that home and I'm going to cook that. That's so true. A lot of the germs are going away. Now, a piece of fruit has just been sitting there. Someone could have walked over, touched that, cough on it, <laughs> put it back down. Like I washed the shit out of the vegetables I got because I was really freaked out about it. And so to me, I was kind of like, I want to eat like, and I bought like more packaged and frozen stuff than I typically do. Cause I'm like, this stuff feels safer to me than like fresh veggies right now because, you know, you can clean them, but I'm not going to like rub them down with alcohol. Right. Like I-, right. I was a little bit freaked out by that. So mm, I, mean, sure. I don't know. I don't know. That's it could right. be an interesting point though. Um, I also, uh, what the last thing I want to bring up. Ah, I forget. Anyway, let's move on to the other thing I want to talk about,
0: Greg. Uh-huh. Unless,
1: unless you're good, you get good with the effects of remote work on the world. <laughs> um yeah sure i mean i think that's that That that's probably yeah that's a big piece of it and yeah anyway yeah so i want to talk about a little bit and we've been going two hours but we're going to keep going because what else have we got to do uh i want to talk a little more about like broader things societal okay. things sure uh some of your favorite things so i have a proposition that i want to know what you think about i think that one of the silver linings of This, like we've already gone into all the negatives, they're obvious, you know, multiple levels of tragedy. However, I think, and still room left to be determined, but I think this is a force against the post-truth era. I agree. Because I think the science is rising to the top and it's making the people who advocate post-truth worldviews look like idiots, Yep. And I mean, I was really hoping that the main one would probably catch it and die. But, you know, uh, and I really don't feel bad saying that at all. uh, Because I thought that'd be the ultimate, you know, deflation of the post. Almost almost
0: too poetic.
1: Right. Almost, almost too. But um, hey, still could happen. Uh, But I think that there's this combination of like, I mean, and, and this is once again, this is through my sphere being stuck in my house for two and a half weeks, consuming more social media than I typically do consuming more internet and news articles than I typically do in my spheres and my bubbles that I've created for myself. All that being said, I feel like the truth is emerging because people are really pushing for it. And there's also a large amount of, and this is not a judgment thing, but just like a lot of like social guilt and pressure and, you know, uh, to you know stay home and do the right thing and you know think about other people. So I think there's this dual edge thrust for society that this thing could and there's a lot of ways it could go, but a help make a more science evidence based uh you know social thought but also a more us not me thought.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you on both counts. Um I think that a lot of people are waking up to the idea that um What you say um, can have actual consequences, you know, and not like the kind of out there consequences of, well, if you say that you might affect the turnout of primary voters in Nebraska in 2028, like not that kind of stuff. Or, well, you can't say that because that undermines democracy, which, you know, probably true statements, but that's not as immediate to people as like, hey, you can't say that because that might make people make decisions that get people killed. Right. Um, all of a sudden, people are seeing that actually, yeah, no, words matter and getting it right matters. Um, and I, I I, think that's, that's huge. Um, and I think this, um, and it does go hand in hand with your second point, that um, it does seem to be that people are all of a sudden... Finally waking up to the fact that they are just nodes in a network and that their actions have can have impact on strangers and they feel responsible for that. Yeah. And and that um, uh, and that sometimes you should do the right thing, even if it doesn't immediately benefit you and even if it imposes a immediate cost on you, that you should do the right thing to protect people you don't even you've ne- you haven't even met um i think that the f- way that we're waking up to that is incredible to me like i honestly that has been one of the most amazing things about all this because i would have said the idea that americans would on mass um start rooting for like stay the fuck home because uh, you know i just would have predicted that you know the way that like oh we're doomed like <laughs> we, we, we are the no turn signals nation of like, why don't need the turn signal? I know where I'm going. You know, like it's this idea, um, you know, we're the rolling coal country. Um, and the fact that all of a sudden we're like, and, and the weirdest thing to me is that strangely enough, just in the last week, all of a sudden the Republican leadership is out there talking about basically what we owe to each other and like you know we need to take care of each other and take care of people and and like we need to be careful with our own actions because of the way they're going to influence other people like that is amazing to me because i remember when you know just not even 10 years ago when um you know Two of the major figures in the Republican Party were literally named after Ayn Rand. <laughs> and um, you know, and and the whole like fuck you got mine was almost the party party motto. But all of a sudden everybody's like, it it it's just amazing to me. And I hope it lasts. I hope that um this is This is something where people realize, like, hey, uh, we're all in this together. And um, even and it's not just about me and what has an impact on me um, that. um, Yeah, it's just amazing. You know, it's I saw a video on Reddit of and it takes place in in Spain, but it's some British tourist clearly defying the um, the rules. And she's just like in a hotel Pool in Spain, all by herself, just you know, complaining about how they can't tell her what to do. And everybody, you know, all the other guests are like, now they're out watching this scene in the pool, and everybody there is basically like, fuck you, what are you (laughs) doing? Whereas I feel like two weeks ago in America, it would be like, we'd be rooting for the idiot in the pool, you know what I mean? Like, ah, yeah, they can't tell you what to do, you're an American, even though this video isn't a great example, but like. It feels like now we've shifted, and now we're like now as America, we can now correctly identify assholes, <laughs> which yeah. before we could not do. <laughs> I
1: mean, when when Fox News is like pushing back on people giving false information about stuff, you know something is changing. Yeah, at least I'm, I'm not saying to be permanent. I'm not. I'm not that hopeful. <laughs> to no, be honest, and and there's but. definitely
0: part of this is that um, because this virus is most you know it it it's. Uh, it's basically targeting the Fox News audience. Fair. Um, they have a, a big incentive to, you know, make sure this is handled correctly. Um, Let alone an if, election. I feel like if this if this was a disease that um, like targeted, you know, like 19 year old Latino women, uh, their response would be much different. But um, or you mean like
1: a disease that was like, you know, predominantly affected, uh, you know, LGBT communities in in the 80s and 90s and was, you know, treated really, really, you know, respectfully. Everyone did. No, there was no information, no no misinformation going on around around that. Right. Yeah. AIDS. That was a thing. Yeah. This is like like you said, like if it's targeting the different population groups, it would be very different for sure.
0: Yeah. And and that's a cynical view. But it does seem like um, we might be on the on the verge of a more collectivist awakening. And the fact that all of a sudden it does seem like people are, you know, ideas like a universal basic income. We are all of a sudden negotiating it in the in the in the public sphere. We are and 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 fucking Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton are the ones talking about they were the first ones talking about it Um, and whether or not it is a UBI or a one time check. But the fact that we are even having the conversation is huge um, and the fact that all of a sudden just the, the cruelty of our lack of guaranteed paid sick time, all of a sudden people are aware of that and are like, everybody's like, yeah, no, that's fucked up. Can we fix that? Like now, um, is amazing. And that we're not having the argument I feel like we would have had when, uh, a different, a, a different guy also named Mitt Romney was running for president and it was all about makers versus takers, Right. And, you know, you've got to encourage ingenuity and, and well, if we just, you know, if we just give people stuff, then blah, blah, blah. But now all of a sudden we're like, no, you need to give people stuff.
1: Right. And once that lens comes down and many people won't, but some people, many, you know, many other people will start applying that to the rest of life and realize right. that, oh, right. There's a ton of people in this country who are in crisis management mode every
0: single day. Yes. And, and I think part of it is that. Especially with the restaurant closures, you're see you're going to see tens or hundreds of thousands of people all at once um, fall into the ashes of our safety net. It's all going to happen. All of those people are going to happen all at once, and in the full view of the public, right like right in front of the cameras of CNN, because everybody's paying attention to this, and that's going to highlight for everyone the fact that there is no safety net. Um, they're going to realize it all at once. And that I think is part of what's making people take action. Um, It's big and it's visible now and we're all paying attention to it Um, as opposed to, you know, every day, hundreds of thousands of people fall through, but it's all a bunch of different people for a bunch of different reasons. And we can all kind of look the other way. You know, it's not like everybody who's a waiter or a waitress all at once. You know what I mean? Right. Um, It's, you know, um, I think that's going to, that's going to matter. And I think it's going to shift things. And I think that a lot of the things that are currently being pitched as temporary fixes will not be, um, I read an article, I think it was on slate about, um, how this is going to expose a lot of the bullshit little rules and little like gotcha things in our system. Um, for what they are. And the example I think that the, the the writer used was, so the TSA apparently has lifted the liquid restriction in carry-ons for hand sanitizer. Okay. So now you can go up to like 15 ounces of hand sanitizer or whatever, where it used to be three, which they're not going to be able to go back, right? They're not going to be able to go back and say like, now I know before we said 15 ounces of hand sanitizer was safe, but we've changed our mind and now only three ounces is safe again in this bullshit you know, thing. Um, But then once you've given us 15 ounces of hand sanitizer, the next question the public's going to ask when we get around to it is like, well, can I have more shampoo too? (laughs) And it's going to be very hard for the TSA to say no. Uh, All the hand sanitizers you want, but not only three ounces of shampoo. Right, the clear
1: alcohol-based substance that is probably right. the most dangerous out of any of the things that you could... For,
0: for these rules that actually never matter, they were all just designed to make you feel like we were doing something. Um, but that's just one example. But, like, this idea of... So I think one of the things that um, the president announced uh, today, or maybe it was yesterday, was that, you know, a suspension of evictions mm-hmm. under certain circumstances. Yeah. Um, but once enough people have digested that... And they say like, yeah, no, obviously you shouldn't evict people because they're sick and can't go to work, or because, um, you know, they lost their job because the business closed down because of blah 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 blah. And then people are going to say, yeah, of course, no, that doesn't exist. And then the next question is, yeah, but shouldn't that just always be the way it is? Shouldn't you always be protected if from that under these circumstances? And most people are going to be like, yeah, actually, that does make sense or once you've done this right and you've said that like okay we're you know we're we're suspending evictions for people who are sick you know at what point do you say um all right we're evictions for sick people are okay again right. you know like you can't do that people are going to lose their shit um if if you if once you start to roll back some of these changes um you know mandatory or like mandatory paid sick time you know yeah. like once you turn that on, you're not going to be able to say, um, emergency's over, so now um, all, all all you employers can take that away from people. People do not like having things taken away from them. <laughs> um, so A lot of these things are just going to stick. And a lot of these things are going to expand because a lot of these things are, you know, they're being very narrowly targeted. And then people are going to just kind of wake up to the idea of like, wait, what do you mean that a city used to be able to turn off your water because – You were you got fired. (laughs) Yeah. Like, wait, what? No, no, West, we shouldn't have that at all. Um, And that's all good stuff, if you ask me.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's another layer that I think is I think you're right. People don't want to get rid of stuff. But I think that my concern would be how people view this. Right. And there's there's two there's two lines of thought and the line of thought that the Republican Party and the front runner, the front runner for Democratic Party take is, well, this is an emergency. This is a crisis. This is a one-off event. And as opposed to, you know, the no longer front-runner for the Democratic Party that might <laughs> say something like, hmm, yeah. our systems could have accounted for this and made this much better. Also, the logic still stands in a lot of ways. For so example, I was just reading an article on Reddit, or not article, just on our college, an ask Reddit, basically just like, hold up, so we're all self isolating and, and socially isolating and quarantining to prevent the spread of COVID and flatten the curve and all these things we've learned about which, you know, attests to real information penetrating all the murkiness. I mean, we've seen some real shitheads emerge in this crisis, but I think we've also seen a lot of, like, real information get distributed how it needs to be, which is which is good. But, like, what does that mean for, like, the regular flu and, like, the common cold and all the other things? Everyone's like, yeah, I mean, those are going to not be spread as much either. Like, less people are going to die this year because of the, you know, due, due to the flu than previous years because of what we're doing right now. Granted, flu season's almost over, but... Regardless, like it's still going to happen. So then, like, now you're wondering, well, like, okay, so when people are sick, they shouldn't go to work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like the same logic applies in a lot of different ways, right? So, like I said, once people put the lens on, they, they not going to be able to unsee certain things. Now, I do worry, like I said, people are going to frame it as a crisis management piece but here's my point that i think that you could sway some people would be and i'm gonna to get too political but like if you you know i was reading a, a thing with uh interview with andrew yang today because he was like he's everyone's to talk to him now he's just like yeah it's happening like <laughs> this is what's going on but and he was like i'm not thrilled with the context but you know it's interesting uh, that we're having this discussion to your point but i i was thinking that like you can make an argument a fiscal argument for hey, I just ran the numbers. If we give a thousand dollars to three hundred and sixty million people, that's like three hundred and sixty billion dollars. We just injected one and a half trillion dollars into the federal or from from the federal reserve into the markets, whatever the fuck that means. Right. <laughs> and like we're doing all these other emergency things that we're going for. And somehow no one's asking, how are we paying for it? Right? And when no one asks that question, it's easy. But we should be asking the question. We should always be asking how we're paying for stuff. That's that's fiscal responsibility in the real sense, not the shitty Republican sense. But the question is, okay, so if we just built these systems out and built our tax structure to pay for it so that when it is an emergency, we don't need to increase the national debt or pull money from wherever else or, you know, all these different – where this money is coming from, it doesn't come from nowhere. I mean, it kind of comes from nowhere. But it also – you know, that's all whole North side is like people are seeing the – screen pull back of like wait what the fuck is money anyway um we made it up but like you know what i mean but like if you frame it that like this is a more having these systems in place from the get-go is more fiscally responsible than just like waiting for a crisis to come and having to just throw money at every sector of the economy and society to keep things afloat right
0: yeah I, i i mean i think that um the vast number of people are going to be much more receptive to the um uh well for them it's it's they start to see the benefit and then they're not going to want to have it turned off um I think that the the vast majority of people are not generally persuaded by fiscal arguments mm-hmm. um well, I think they're persuaded by the illusion around the republican illusion around fiscal arguments well because- i think I think a lot of people like to um they like to and I don't want to psychologize strangers too much, but you are um you're taking a fiscal position because um, the actual position is is unpalatable. Um, you, you're arguing for the fiscal irresponsibility of something um, as a, as a shield of from saying I I don't think this is a good use of money. I don't want to pay for this. I I don't I don't want my taxes to pay for this, or I don't want money taken away from programs I like to pay for this program I don't like um, because. I don't know that someone exists who um, who does not have a list of potential government programs that they would like to see uh, more money go to and a list that they would like to see less money go to. I I mean, I don't think there is a true fiscal, like fiscal responsible person who's like, everything needs to be cut, right? Like that, that person, like everything, literally every element of of government needs a 50% cut. So the military... The cops, you know, they all need a cut. No, I mean, it's always like, well, Social Security needs a cut and, um, you know, Medicare needs a cut. Um, But the military could actually use a couple more dollars now that you mentioned it. You know what I mean? It's always. Yeah, so- I think that's here's the thing.
1: I'm going to push back a little bit. I think that's a majority of policymakers feel that way and a large contingent of the base that those people serve. But I do think there is a lot of people who get, and I was one of them for a very long time. I would have been that person you just described who said, everything needs cut 50%. Everything. Because we, because the economy, economics is so obscure and complicated. And I mean, every day I just feel like I understand less and less about it. But we're told that, and they make this, you know, the bad people trick the decent people into believing this stuff. By putting it like this, well, debt's bad, right? You don't want to have debt. If you if you have hundred thousand dollars in debt, you would be repaying that down, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah, 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 of course. So, and we're taught, you know, and the government's done this, like, you know, we've got to have a balanced budget. We got to have, you know, the national debt's soaring. You know, China and Saudi Arabia own half our country. You hear these things, right? But like, they're just out of context bits and pieces because macroeconomics is incredibly complicated, and it's not really it's it's like unfathomable. We're, we're comparing our own financial solvency and our own fiscal like attitudes and responsibility of like an organization or a household to the federal government. it just doesn't work the same way. And that's where people fall into trap because a lot of people do think it works the same way. And that, you know, there's not all these weird things that occur at that upper level where like money begins to lose the sort of, you know, value, not value, but like the point it is like money to meet you and me is not money. It is the federal government when you're dealing in trillions of dollars, right? It's right. A,
0: it's a, right. A household budget and a, 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 a national budget are hey, calling them both budgets is already misleading. Right. It's a conflation that I think
1: tricks a lot of people. Absolutely. And, and I think that, I mean, and then people talk about like what, and this is one thing I want to say is like, I think for a lot of people, it's like, what the fuck is the economy? Right. Like what is, is it the stock market? Is that the only indicator of success in the economy is like, because that's one thing I think that is a big problem. I'm getting political here. But, you know, like when we're saying like, oh, the economy is good. Like for whom? Right. Like the economy, the metrics we use to measure the economy is like unemployment, which is a dumb statistic, doesn't line up with anything to actually relate to like realistic employment and, and value, valuable employment. You know, OK, the the Dow Jones is up or the S&P or whatever. Like, OK, that's good for like your retirement fund, but that doesn't affect like most people for most of their lives. Yeah,
0: I I think so, that part of this is...
1: Um yeah, I think people made the made the point that like, oh, one and a half trillion from was injected by the Fed into the market. Okay, okay, that's more than all the student debt in the country.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then it all disappeared. Right. And like where it, did it overnight. all go? Just gone. Right. Where is that money? And that's why um but I will say that having been more or less an adult and awake for two giant panics, right? I was a you know, I I was I was a working adult in for the 2008 crash and the response. And I am just as much of a working adult now for this one. Um, and I will say, and, and I am, I'm, I'm, I'm so heartened by this, that the response to this seems so much more people focused rather than like economy and business focused. Yeah. Um, this seems like, All of us already, all the big conversations are about how do we help um, people get through this? Not so much. I mean, it still is a conversation, but the conversation is not how do we protect the airline industry? How do we protect the hotel industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is so much less of that and so much more urgency to how do we help people not, and I'm uh, even setting aside the actual, like, how do we get people tested and treated? And it's, you know, for the disease itself, but the economic conditions brought on by it, how do we protect people? And the, the fact that that is where the conversation seems to be centered is again very heartening to me that, um, you know, before it was in 2008, it was questions about, um, How exactly are we going to bail out the auto industry? That was really all the, uh, that was the conversation. Um, and now we're talking about we are going to write people checks. We're trying to figure out how much to write them a check for. We are going to get people the paid sick time. We just have to work out the details. Like, you know, um, and the first three bills that got passed as a response to this were essentially like focused on, or the first two, I think. Focused on helping people before they're helping companies. Um, And uh, that's great. Um, And I think that just the fact that that seemed to be the natural reaction from everybody, that's a very positive sign to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that, like, I've heard a lot of people talk about like, oh, my God, like, you know, because I I read it so that It's like this could be our new normal for six months to a year. Yep. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen just from, you know, what we've seen about past, you know, things like this. But this is, this is unprecedented in a lot of ways. So it's hard to hard to gauge. But regardless, it's like people, I see people like, how can our economy handle us? And they're not talking about how can this how the stock market, they're talking about the whole economy, right? right. Like how many small businesses are going to close? How are they going to survive? How are people going to get what they need when things start to, you know, when when a bunch of people are homesick from Amazon and they can't deliver your groceries or whatever. Like, you know, and we said we were going to go doom and gloom here, but like, that's a, I think they said that like taking the whole picture and the fact that you've got fucking Donald fucking Trump up there talking about advocating actively to give cut
0: people a check. Like what, yeah. like what world are we fucking in? Yeah, I know. It's, it's amazing because um that again, under mostly Republican leadership too, we're doing this. Um, that, and it's not like we're doing this after mass protests, you know, right. it's not like we had to really, really twist their arms to consider putting people before corporations. Um, I don't know how they ended up here. I <laughs> honestly. Mean, I, I only fact- have one, one, my only, the only logic that makes sense is they
1: know that if they don't do something, they lose everything in the fall.
0: Yes. I, because, I think they're, they're terrified of, yeah. um, But uh, I I think that uh, but even just the casual conversation, you know, we're talking about how people are going to be affected and we're not talking about, um, you know, what's the president going to do to get the Dow back up 500, you know, like or whatever. That's not the conversation in, in most places where in 2008, it was all about how does the stock market get better? And I think people are slowly waking up to the fact that the stock market has nothing to do with the economy for the vast majority of people. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Um, it, it's yes, it, it does drive some corporate decision making, which ends up having Indirect influence on people's lives, but people are much more concerned with like, um, yeah, what's going to happen when, you know, um, when, you know, my neighbors can't pay their rent, right? What's going to happen when I can't pay my rent? Um, you know, those those are the questions that all of a sudden we are much more interested in answering, whereas before it was more like, don't you what do you how dare you bring up something so vulgar as your own personal finances? You fool, don't you know that we have to figure out how GM survives? <laughs> um, but even now, I mean, I, I think that it, it's, you know. The talk of like, OK, look, if you're going to bail out the airlines again, you've got to do it differently than you did it last time. And if you're going to bail out industries again, you know, you've got to do it differently. You can't just, you know, um, basically give them a pile of cash and say, please be good capitalists with this now. Right. Um, uh, um, yeah, I read it. I read it. I mean, a, you know, I saw a headline. That was from a you know I'm sure this isn't going to happen but this would be a great time to nationalize the air industries the airline industry <laughs> yeah you know, I mean, we should just tell you what Delta you're hurting we we the United States government are just going to buy you I'm curious yeah I'm just
1: curious to see you know and this is more short term short term stuff but I think that you know like you said once you have I mean who knows it's a lot of things that are not logical but logic would dictate that once you have a Republican Party leading some of these initiatives, it's kind of hard to turn around and say, give it all back, and also
0: that's all morally wrong communist things. Right. That is going to be the big thing, is they will no longer be able to make the moral argument against socialism. Right. Because they're doing a lot of socialism right now. (laughs) Right.
1: I'm almost Uh, more curious to see how the Democratic Party responds to this.
0: Yeah, now that it seems like on a lot of these things, Joe Biden appears to be to the
1: right of Mitt <laughs> Romney. I mean, you saw it in the debate whether, you know, he was so focused on like, well, it's an emergency. It's a crisis. We have to mobilize the military. And this that's a very like that feels like a very 90s, 2000s Democratic Party response where the 90s, 2000s Republican response been like, "Nah, fuck it. Like, you know, fuck those people. Right. Katrina or whatever else. Yeah. Right. Like, but, you know, now people are like, yeah, but systems.
0: Well, yeah, right? and I think that I do think that one of the things that um, I do not think the poor for, the for-profit healthcare system survives this. Um, I think that we are rapidly approaching two things that are gonna that are just going to open up everybody's eyes to the absurdity and cruelty of the for-profit system. The first is when uh, when people start getting bills for their tests. And or whenever treatment happens and people start getting bills for those, um, that is going to be a problem. And two, when we have our first shortage of hospital beds, um, when that happens, that's going to be another one. Because the question is, why do we have a hospital bed shortage? And the answer to that question is because it's not profitable to have more beds. We weren't going to buy expensive beds just in case. Um so when that happens um you know that's going to very crystallize for a lot of people that it's not just about the for-profit system makes everything more expensive and more complicated it's also things like the for-profit system is preventing us from being prepared right. for stuff like this
1: i mean there's a reason that the federal government under republican leadership is using was like the war industry act or whatever yes. to force companies to make more ventilators. Right. The Republican because Party is forcing private companies to make more ventilators.
0: Right. Um, because the obvious answer is if they didn't, if, if they wouldn't, if we weren't forcing them to. Right. Um, so yes, it's going, it's going to bring a lot of this stuff into focus for people. Um, And uh, I I, I just feel like once Americans get a little taste of that socialism, they're they're going to want they're going to want to keep going back for it. Um, And I do think that in the fall, it is going to be really, really difficult for um, for them to uh, argue against, you know, socialist policies. If for some reason, the Democrats decide to run on any of them. (laughs) Um, Yeah. How fucking weird would it be, by the way, if. In November, we are at a stage where the Republicans essentially have the most liberal economic policy. I I don't know what to say. <laughs> it seems unlikely I mean, given everything. What do you do? Still. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, I think that. But generally, like, I don't think that that system survives it because again, just like the the um the apocalypse that's coming for the for the um restaurant workers um is going to bring the lack of a safety net into focus. Um, The, you know, the upcoming, you know, issues when once this, once this thing starts to put a strain on our healthcare system and people start getting the bills, it's going to bring that into focus as well. And that system is going to be very, very difficult to defend um, in November. And then again, when we're actually trying to get some stuff passed, it's it's going to be very difficult to defend that system.
1: Yeah. I mean, and like, we don't want to do gloom, doom and gloom here, but, like, it is going to put a strain on our healthcare. system. Oh, it system. absolutely will. Yeah. And, you know, w- w- granted, we we do have more hospitals and medical professionals than other countries, like, per capita. But to your point, like, they're not all equipped to handle these things. No, even, we, we have fewer beds. Right. And responses and, to, like, you know, like, Biden's response of, like, well, is going to come out and set up, you know, the Army's going to come out and set up field hospitals. And it's like, that's not, like, they immediately came out and said, yeah, we can't. Do that, like that's not how you treat these diseases. And you know, it, it's this thing is so it's so easy for one place to be a crack, and all these hospitals that are. I mean, I'm gonna tell an anecdote here, and it's gonna be vague because um, you know I don't want to reveal anyone's dirty laundry. But my mother works in; he's a respiratory therapist. So thanks, mom, for being awesome and having to go to work. Uh, her hospital just received. They just had their first confirmed case of coronavirus. Um, but over the weekend, there were multiple scares because people were not being processed correctly. This is before the strain begins, mind you. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're busy because it's flu season and stuff. But, you know, this is before this. You know, there was multiple times where my mom's like, I might have been exposed to somebody. They weren't tested properly. They weren't confined properly. And she's like, I just did the math. And about half the hospital was just exposed if this person comes back positive. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened in Italy because a lot of the healthcare professionals got infected. So it's going to put a strain. And, you know, what effect a nationalized healthcare system would have on that? It's hard to say entirely because Italy's system is nationalized. But, you know, you could definitely say that people are going to be more proactive in feeling like they can go to the hospital and get tested and, and all these different things. And also, like, you know, maybe not turning down, you know, the World Health Organization's offer of. Selling us a bunch of testing kits, but you know it's not here nor there. Yeah, um,
0: I mean, I think that yes, Italy does have a a nationalized healthcare system, and it is still under strain um, for sure. Um, but I think that I'm not saying that a a nationalized healthcare system would solve this, but. If we'd had a nationalized healthcare system 10 years ago, we probably would have more beds today. We would probably be better prepared um, because the nationalized system would be able to do unprofitable things like build build excess beds, uh, invest in excess technology, invest in preparedness, um, but also – the fact is that yes, Italy's healthcare system is strained and they're having to make some very difficult choices, but at the end of it, people aren't going to get bills, right? And anybody who needs treatment or testing doesn't have to consider the cost, the the financial cost when when they when they make that decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. And also like you can direct it just makes the system is more flexible because you know, not to belabor the point that's been made a thousand times, but like system of like, well, my insurance, does it cover this? And can I go here? Is that a network? And these questions, they prevent, they make a cognitive dissonance, a cognitive load that prevents people from, they get paralyzed and it's like, eh, I'll just wait it out. Yeah. And it's not, it's not good.
0: And, and you see situations where, um, you know, it is when the healthcare system is, you know, controlled by the government, the government can much much more quickly and effectively do things like, you know, like, um, Hey, we are closing hospitals for anything that is not, um, you know, a, a life threatening emergency or something like that, you know, like right now, individual healthcare providers kind of have to make that call, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, um, and some of them will make the call of like, we're only going to see emergency patients. Right. Um, uh, but right now, there isn't a very fast, effective way to just say to everyone in the state or in the country, hey, from now on, this is what you're doing. And these are the, you know, um, and these are the, you know, these are the bounds of what, you know, what you can see. And also, we're also going to communicate those exact same rules to all the to the public. So everybody knows and there's no confusion. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's like. We kind of have to do everything fuzzy, and like you know, the, the the governor will be like, "I advise all healthcare professionals who only see emergency emergency patients, and um, I advise you know people to not go to the doctor unless it's an emergency." But you can't say like, "And this is what counts as an emergency," and by the way, you know, we we have the power to enforce this. You just you could respond to these things much more um, decisively. Yeah.
1: And, you know, sometimes there's always that argument like decisiveness versus agility, right? Sometimes, you know, a a decentralized system can be more agile, but in a case like this, I think decisiveness is what you're looking for, right? Because the agility around one state's response or or one hospital's response to another doesn't really dramatically change the path, right? Right. You know, this is one thing. This is one thing that article uh, I read about um, or the the, – Professor from Yale talked about how, you know, one of the things that epidemics do is make you realize that you are part of a larger system and that we need to act as a race to combat it. And that this is sort of what's happening, you know, it's happening right now but obviously, and I think it's more obvious to us in the modern world than it was in the past because there's all the other things associated with, you know, uh plagues and things like who who brought it in is it from somebody else is it from those crazy you know orientals or whatever you know i mean like these things come from different places and there's all these other contexts with it but like knowing understand how like germs work and these kind of things like yeah there's not a lot that any one country could do to start or stop this sort of thing or 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 curve it if if we're not thinking about other places
0: right yeah i mean so and and to to bring this all back to you know our kind of our kind of central lane of sci-fi and fantasy um there's always a, a, a an element of like optimistic sci-fi where um an alien invasion brings the human race together right and we forget about our um you know we forget about our differences and we we band together and we all become better as a result um and then i think randy quaid flies a jet into a spaceship's butthole yeah that's how it works um, um i mean but, but your point is
1: well made because like Almost every specul, you know, science fiction, futuristic story. There's usually a world government, right? Or you know, oftentimes broader than a single world. But mm-hmm. like, you know, and sometimes there's there's factions within a, you know, we look at something like the Expanse. We've got Earth and Mars, but like, there's always this assumption that this is where we're going to end up, right? Whether they call it the UN or they call it the countries of Earth or whatever. Like, there's there is a. It seems to be almost like unanimous that there's a trend towards a centralized human government in sci-fi.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily love that because I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I worry that power is corrupting and concentrating the, all the power and, and it's of an entire planet in one or two people is, is worse. <laughs> well, yeah, but, I, I think um, that the, I think that power
1: dispersion and, and stuff would look very different in a, I don't think that, that's part of the sci-fi's probably got it wrong is that like you're probably not going to have like a president of earth like you yes, know what i mean it, I it's going to work that way like that's not how the u.n works that's not how the eu works right. like the examples we have on earth right now of broader pan national organizations like the world health organization or the world bank or the eu, EU or the yeah. un or whatever like that's not how any of them work
0: right they don't have a say. right no, it, it, i know yeah i get it um Um, but I think that like the beauty of the common enemy uh, being an alien in Independence Day or any of these other ones is that, um, so for example, America did kind of unite around a common enemy in 2001. Problem is, is that they were Muslims. Yeah. Like that, that, that really the common enemy we were uniting against was Islam. And that fucking sucks. Um, but it did, you could see how it rallied America, to a certain extent. And you could also say we had the common enemy of the Nazis, although not everybody was on board with them being the enemy still aren't. Um, but <laughs> here the common enemy is a disease, right? It is. It, 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 it's like the aliens from the other planet, except we can't even do the thing of like, Oh, they really wanted peace all along. They were just bad at communicating. <laughs> um, we can't even do that. It's like, no, it's a virus. Right. Um, it is – and it, it – it, so you get the um, camaraderie of the common enemy, but, but there's no losers there, right? Like there is no common enemy that is an actual person or group of people who will suffer the splash damage of the rallying cry. You know, like we are um, – we all have a thing to fight now, and um, in fighting it, we are realizing um, – we are we are seeing that commonality. People are becoming more in tune with their interconnectedness with everyone else. They're they're becoming more in tune with the consequences of their actions. Um, they're becoming more in tune with the fragility and cruelty of our systems. Like that's kind of good. Yeah, I mean the I think that
1: one thing I took a class. I think I mentioned this before in college called the collapse of states and systems. And then I ended up I ended up uh, focusing on that in my graduate degree in history um to a certain extent and you know it, it's there's always been this saying that we're about two days away from anarchy three mm-hmm. days away on a, on yeah, a good somebody week
0: yeah has how many missed
1: meals right exactly and you know that's not what's happening now that's not what's going to happen here but pretty damn quickly i mean and i saw you know this is like a it was a really stupid like facebook post by your aunt kind of thing like you know uh, stupid but the point was interesting it was like you know, in 1941, our country had to galvanize and go to war. All we're asking you to do is stay the fuck home. Right. You know, stupid, whatever. But the point is interesting because it's like, yeah, we are galva- galvanizing, but how quickly people are starting to realize, like, you know, we said all the things we talked about in this episode about some of the potential negative fallout, even though we're trying to talk about that. But it does make for a certain atmosphere of, like you said, galvanization, but also unease. And the realization that complex systems are innately fragile. That's how they work. It's almost like a rule of thumb, a rule of like some universal rule. that, Like the more complex something is, the more fragile it becomes. And that, you know, putting a wrench in that, putting a, uh, you know, a penny on the track or whatever is going to cause system malfunction. Now you can build fail safes for that, which is what complex societies need to do in order to survive, but... The fact that, I mean, in systems thinking, and systems, um, you know, the the role of, that's one of the big areas right now in collapse studies is the role of like systems of like how everything fits together. Because for a while, people were always talking about, you know, the, what was the cause of the fall of Rome or the fall of this or that or the collapse of the Soviet Union, whatever. And people always try to choose, pick very one dimensional things. Oh, it was the plague. Oh, it was Lead pipes, oh, it was the environment, whatever. Sometimes those are true, but more often than not, it's usually a confluence of a number of things and a system that got very complex, but didn't build on the right fail-safes to keep itself going through a a major crisis. And I think you're seeing, like you said, the stress on our system right now. And the question is, how do people then take this lens, take this galvanization, and is it a one-time thing or does it apply to, do people go, you know what? thinking about things that affect the whole world and everyone's playing a part and governments have a big role in how it's rolled out and our survival is at stake. kind of sounds a lot like climate change, doesn't it? Hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like things like that, where it's like, how are people going to use this as a, I'm not saying that in a negative way, but in probably a positive way, like to reframe people's attitudes towards things to to your point. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that You know, to your to your earlier point about how, you know, it's we're all two two meals away from revolution or or what have you. We're not there, but I think that um, people can see it on the horizon now. It's much more tangible for them. Like Mm -hmm. they we are all now much more in touch with. Oh, boy, I'm all of a sudden I can see where the points of failure in my entire life are, you know.
1: Right. Like like. In, in the article by from that guy from Yale, he talked about how a lot of the art becomes very macabre and, and you know, this dance of the dead and these kind of things that like because people had to deal with death so much, they became so, you know, attuned to it. And this is in a world where people die a lot more than they do now. But for our world, like, you know, it's hard to imagine not being able to eat or something for many people. For some for many people, it's not hard to imagine, which is unfortunate. But for most people in the United States. Um, not the case, but man, when you go to that grocery store and you start to see empty shelves, you're like, Oh shit. Right. Like, and I- shit, man, what I can't do, like, you know, what, what am I? And then you start, you
0: realize like, Holy shit,
1: if this was like this for the next week, I'd be, I'd be shit out of
0: luck. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, we, we have, you know, we, um, we built a, we built a, a, su- a supply, um, at the very Beginning stages of this, we built, you know, we've got two weeks of non-perishable food in a big box in the basement. And um, and then you figure between what we just have just in our normal groceries, plus the various stuff in the in the pantry. that's just, you know, like well, I could probably scrape together another week just on the ramen noodles and ranch dressing that's in the pantry today. Right. Um, so it's like, OK, that's three weeks. And then once you realize that if the grocery store is shut down, we've got three weeks and then we're done. And I think when people when you start to visualize that you you do realize like oh boy, um this is maybe you know maybe maybe things can be a little rough and maybe we need to maybe we need stronger protections against this. Maybe we need better plans, maybe we need better leaders, maybe we need better systems. Um and then when you uh, and then also I think when people realize once they the enormity of this Starts to dawn on them when they see the measures their governments are taking to control this relatively benign disease. And I say relatively benign. I mean, uh, in comparison to the kinds of diseases we see in like movies and TV shows, you know, the kinds that like melt your face and turn your brain to mush. Zombie Um, apocalypse, whatever. Right. You know, or or even Ebola, you know, the really scary real world diseases. When we see this and we see all the confusion and we see the fact that like, oh, no. We could not have managed this on our own. Like, there is no like. I should start hanging out on the libertarian subreddit and just see how they're processing all of this <laughs> because I would like to see. Um, I, I get. I, I best. I bet I could guess exactly what they're saying. Uh, like how? Like what is the libertarian worldview? How would you have managed this crisis? Um, When it's like, no, we are getting to the point where it is like we are going to have to send the cops to St. Patrick's Day parties so that grandma doesn't die. (laughs) So what
1: what they would say is they would say not to digress, but they would say the following things. There'd be a lot of posts about um, hospitals and nonprofits that were ahead of the curve and curbed this outbreak in their respective areas. There'd be a lot of posts about how. Um, any smart business would be following all these rules and stuff because, oh. you know, uh, it's going to negatively impact them if they don't, you know, less, less people alive is less consumers, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, that'd be the approach they'd be taking. So, uh, just a little glimpse into yeah, any smart
0: business, but all it takes is two dumb ones and then we're all dead. Well, you dummies. That's the, fault um, of the logic, right? Well, I know. Um, right. It's assuming that everyone is a rational actor and, um, right. and that, uh, and, and has
1: perfect information.
0: Right, and that um, that no 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 you know no isolated bad decisions are enough to bring down the whole system, right? Um, that the system is strong enough that a, a bunch of people can be dumb and everything's going to sort itself out. Um, but anyway, um, but like yeah, you see. That you start to see how important government structures are. You see how important it is to have strong, decisive leadership. You see how important it is to have scientists around you. Um, that's very good because it, it's for a long time we've been running on the fiction that um, any old dummy, as long as they're on my team, uh, is is going to be good. And um, we don't need the government. We've got Walmart, you know, mm-hmm. Um and, uh, I think that a lot of people are realizing that's not the case and that will probably make them more receptive to the kinds of policies I want. <laughs> right. <sighs> yeah. So, um, we got a little political here, but that's okay. We did. But, um, given that politics is generally the, um, the, uh, what is it, What what is the phrase? It's the practice of figuring out who gets what, um, yeah,
1: I also, you know, but Greg, don't politicize this, you know, Um uh, so- yeah, you
0: can't not pull it.
1: Politics is everything. So anyone says that's stupid.
0: If if public policy <laughs> is part of it, yeah, then it is political. Yes. Anyway, anyway. Um, so here's what I, I I've been taking little notes as we went of just all the little kind of decisive points about how we think things are going to change um, and what what we think the world is going to look like on the other side of this. Um, uh, and so this is, um, and of course, all of these things will be true. <laughs> All of these predictions will come true. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be the holy text in 2000 years back. These guys got it right. So, um, uh, everything will be decentralized. People will filter out of the cities and location in terms of where you live will become much less important than it was. Everybody will be wearing jeans and sweatpants (laughs) and soft clothing (laughs) from now on. A lot of stretch, a lot of polyester. Um, Everything will be delivered your food, your groceries, everything else. I mean, it's kind of where we are today. Um, you'll see more virtual businesses that have no like actual like storefront or retail space. They just exist in theory. They deliver a product, but that's it. Um, uh, movie theaters will be something that my daughter will be tired of me telling her about, but she's never actually seen one. Um there will be more social clubs and organizations like the Water Buffalo Lodge, and um, it won't be a bowling league. It'll be, um, I don't know, a Fortnite league, <laughs> um, but in person. So paintball, I guess. Um, well, can I kind of make a quick addendum there?
1: I, uh-huh. Uh For a project in school, um, we were making, we had to make a, if we were going to start a nonprofit, this is my nonprofit management degree, we had, if we were going to start a nonprofit, we had to make like a set of mission, vision, values, mission, vision, value statements etc surrounding it and the idea i proposed the one i've been proposing still to this day is basically recreating churches but without the religion you know like i mean and they exist they're called community centers but like
0: <laughs> or unitarians yeah but like really
1: remove it all and how do you, do you structure that and what do you base you know to to recreate that extra social interaction for people and and also like yeah, you know, it's unfortunately necessary but social safety net for people in our yeah. uh, in our world but anyway just thought of people um, looking for something to do.
0: Everybody will be vegetarian. Um, we will all be slightly nicer to each other. <laughs> um, and the whole country will move um, incrementally further left um, on both the economic and social scale, because I do think that um, and on the social scale, I say that because I do think this is one of those things where um, uh ethnic and cultural lines are going to matter less to people um, because this is something that affects everyone equally and we all need to do the same stuff to um, contain it. So I do think that um, you will see a little less um, social and ethnic division um, and the economic stuff we talked about. I think everybody's going to move a couple clicks leftward. It's kind of hard to imagine people moving to the right. Um yeah, I mean, I don't feel like in America right now there's a lot of room left on the right. That's <laughs> true. I kind of feel like uh, I kind of feel like the fact that we have active concentration camps going right now. I kind of feel like there is no more. <laughs> there's no more, no more room left over there. But um, yeah, no, I do think everybody's going to move a couple clicks to the left because um, uh, this is definitely exposing um, the flaws in our market based systems. So that's the future. That's the future. I mean, that sounds an
1: awful lot like a future Greg designed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I just want to make very clear and I should have made this clear at the outset. Uh, none of this has been wishful thinking, (laughs) um, confirmation bias. I actually, um, the fun fact, I was born without the part of your brain that does confirmation bias. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, (laughs) yeah. also most other biases and fallacies i'm just physically incapable of um so you know just remember all of that yeah
1: and there's a ton of things we didn't talk about about what effect this has on like you know media and art and all these other factors of of one thing i i didn't think about greg looking back that you know for if people were working remote it Changes what people are looking for in houses because maybe you want to have a home gym and you want to make sure you have an office for both you and your spouse and you know it just changes. There's so many ripple effects of these things that
0: you yeah, don't think and about. Also, all of education.
1: Yeah, I had a big note about that, but okay. it was just going to be a whole nother episode because yeah, maybe we, we can hold on that one. Maybe we can do a follow-up to this where in a week we can see if any of these things have come true and then what else we've thought about in the meantime <laughs> because working in the education world and having all of all of education move online effectively and also trying to put wrap your head around. I'm like, wait, online kindergarten. What? And just like, you know, all that, let yeah. alone just like this eternal, you know, even though any school will tell you, Oh no, our online programs are as good as our in person programs like, yeah, but it's different, but why and how, and it's a good time to collect some data on it for sure. So, uh, yeah, it's a whole nother whole nother can of orbs.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. I have I have other things about how like about national vote vote for mail vote by mail and, and mm-hmm. how, you know, uh, liberals are going to start buying guns again and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. But uh, yeah, another time, another place. <laughs> we'll make a we'll make an earth too. different yeah, different right. fork in the road. <laughs> No, no. I, I, I mean, I think those things are going to be included. I just don't uh, think we, could, we, we just didn't get there. What, in our um, three
1: hour, this is the longest, officially the longest podcast I've ever done.
0: Oh, good God, is it really? Yeah. It might be. Oofa doofa. I'm gonna have to upload this thing at like twenty kilobits. We it's can split be- into episodes, maybe. Oh, uh, then I have to like find a spot for it. Oh, I don't know, man. Well, we'll see. I think this is just gonna be one very lossy audio file. <laughs> Well, you can work your magic, I'm sure. Ugh, I might. All right, buddy. Well, all right. Well, stay safe. Stay safe. Be cautious. You know, the same thing I'm telling everybody. If you feel like you're overreacting, you're probably getting it just about right.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, to all our listeners out there, we hope you're you're doing all right. And, you know, if you have any additional uh, thoughts to chalk up to how our world's going to be different in three, five, 10, 20 years from this, love to hear it. Because
0: what else are you going to do? Work? Yeah, man, it's gonna be a long couple of weeks. <laughs> cool. Alright, buddy. Alright. Stay soon. safe.